This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. So I have seen more movies lately. I've gotten an opportunity to see more motion pictures from home. I still have not made it to the movie house yet to see this new Top Gun picture, which I am told is great. Almost everyone that I've spoken to really enjoys it. So I'm looking forward to seeing it, seeing how good it is. I did recently rewatch the original Top Gun. Well, I didn't really watch. I had it on in the background as I had people over. So I uh, got to talking about this on uh, on Sunday. We had uh, we had you know some family and friends over at my dad's, and we're getting together with everybody. And I said, "Well, you know what became of the person that was the basis for the original, the Tom Cruise character of Top Gun in that picture, Randy Duke Cunningham." I said he ended up going to Congress, and then he ultimately ended up going to prison because of uh, essentially. Earmark abuse. He was getting, he was getting bribed for, essentially bribed for steering earmarks in certain directions. And you remember all of the attention that earmark abuse was getting 15 years ago, and it was uh, a whole bunch of scandals. Not just the Randy Duke Cunningham situation, but you had Jack Abramoff. Uh, who was uh, also getting a lot of attention. He ended up going to prison and a bridge to nowhere which exposed a very intricate system of what I'll call legalized bribery that both parties rushed to say they were opposed to. So earmarks, these handy appropriations that Congress people use to slip million dollars fa- of million dollar favors into the budgets, they had been ballooning for over a decade and they looked so bad that this became a top issue in the 2006 Midterm affairs, and they announced ultimately that they were going to do away with earmarks. And you could understand with all the abuse. Now, let's look at what happened two weeks ago. That was 15 years ago when earmarks went away, supposedly. Let's look at what happened two weeks ago. The whole world was paying a, a clo- close attention to the January 6th hearings. And we're going to get into that with Roger Stone in a few minutes. A presidential fist bump of President Biden and Mohammed bin Salman. The uh, Kim Kardashian situation, everything she was up to and all her sisters were up to. While the whole world was paying attention to other things, the House very quietly passed a monstrous $839 billion defense package. It was, in uh, in the words of Republican Alabama Congressman Mike Rogers, the definition of a bipartisan bill. 180 Democrats, 149 Republicans joined to smash by tens of billions of dollars previous record for military spending. So this was a completely underreported story as far as I'm I'm concerned. Roll call did in uh, which covers Congress and stuff like that. They did an interesting article. They described a first-of-its-kind report published by the Department of Defense Controller's Office, which revealed at least $58 billion of congressional additions above what President Biden requested. Understand, Congress added $58 billion to this already massive defense bill that the president never even asked for. So, um, 
a, uh, there was uh, billions of dollars in weapons that the military, and this is all according to roll call, this $58 billion did include money to respond to disasters and the war in Ukraine, which we'll talk about in a second, but it also included billions of dollars in weapons the military did not even seek. So Congress was appropriating money for military weapons that the military didn't even ask for, such as more than $4 billion worth of unrequested warships, many of them built, you guessed it, by the constituents of senior appropriators. Now, doesn't this feel like the Duke Cunningham, Jack Abramoff days are back with a vengeance? The $58 billion revealed by this, by the Department of Defense, only pertained to congressional increases larger than $20 million. So imagine the smaller appropriations that are, aren't even being listed here in this roll call article. And, you know, you wonder, where is the press on this? Why is no one covering this, and especially the folks on the left? Um, now that I guess it's cool to be warmongers again as we march off to uh, defend Ukraine, fighting to the last Ukrainian, one of the few people that I've heard actually cover this story and comment on it is Matt Taibbi. Uh, Matt Taibbi spent a lot of time in his recent uh, Substack column and uh, when he was on uh, television recently talking about how this has been underreported. So there was a, uh, a unique provision this year in the defense bill, uh, thanks to, I, I believe it was an, an amendment that was inserted by a Michigan uh, congresswoman named Melissa Slotkin that forced the Department of Defense to reveal what are called congressional additions, which is really, you know, it's, it's another word for earmark. Basically, it's, it's, it's essentially what it does is it forces the, the Pentagon to publish a list of uh, things that Congress requested uh, for the defense bill over and above what the president asked for. So that's kind of a new thing. And the only outlet to report on that report was uh, Roll Call, a reporter named John Donnelly put it out. Uh, I did something on it this week. And apart from that, I don't don't think anybody's touched it. Nobody has. Roll Call, Matt Taibbi, and now this program. Uh, All the hours of cable news that are out there, all the newspapers, nobody has covered the pork that is in this defense bill. Why was it underreported? This is just sort of uh, par for the course for defense budget reporting. Uh, Every year we have these, almost every year, we've been having these enormous historic increases. And there's really very few people on these stories, unless they can find some kind of partisan angle on the defense bill. Like this year, for instance, it was Republicans who opposed, you know, a measure that would have purged the uh, the Defense Department of white supremacists. Um, years ago, it was Donald Trump uh, refusing to invoke the name of John McCain, who uh, after whom the bill had been named. Uh, unless they can have a, an angle like that, nobody really likes to publish the story of both parties overwhelmingly uh, voting for these massive defense increases, which have now happened under both Trump and Biden. And that is the fundamental point of all this. The military industrial complex that President Eisenhower warned about, it only grows and grows larger. We funnel taxpayer dollars 
to private military contractors who get richer and richer. Those contractors give money to the right politicians that then use uh, that then use their influence on the Hill to fund your money, tax money. Actually, it used to be your money. Now it's all borrowed money from the Chinese. The combination of your money and money that we've borrowed to make these wealthy people even wealthier. Look at this is the iron triangle of big money, special interests, and legislation. They give your money to a bunch of wealthy people to make them wealthier. The super wealthy people who are getting wealthier with these congressional contracts then use some of the money they're getting for lobbyists and campaign contributions. Then uh, those lobbyists and campaign contributions perpetuate this horrible, horrible cycle. What about, uh, by the way, this audio of Matt Taibbi is courtesy of The Hill. What about some of the pork that's in the budget, Mr. Taibbi? Look, there have been already record no- amounts of money spent on weapons. We, we had the $33 billion um, addition that uh, you reported on before uh, that the Biden administration sent. The the Congress this time, uh, of the the $58 billion that the House added to the bill, which is an extraordinary number. I mean, think about that. That's like almost the amount that we spent on the first year of the Iraq war invasion, for instance. Um, uh, the Senate this week also uh, announced uh, an even higher number than uh, the House had approved. They went to $845 billion as opposed to $839 billion. And all they really had to do was say, most of this is for Ukraine, and that exactly. was it. You know, <laughs> you, they, they essentially ascribed all this to um, more money for Ukraine. So if you take that $33 billion and you add all the money that's now been um, added to the defense budget um, – as sort of essentially war funding for Ukraine, it's a it's it's getting to be a pretty enormous number really quickly. Now the big question here, and we're we're going to talk to Roger Stone in just a couple of minutes about a whole bunch of things that he's up to, and a whole bunch of things that are happening in the country. And we'll actually invite your questions or your comments uh, to Roger Stone. Actually, I prefer questions rather than comments. You don't need to call in and say, Roger, oh, you're such a great guy, and I love you. And you also don't need to call in and say, Roger, you're the worst. person person that's ever lived. I hope you go straight to hell without an asbestos suit. No, if you have serious questions, whether they are uh, challenging or just informational, give us a call. I'll take your questions with Roger in just a minute. 800-848-9222. So let's talk about that Ukraine situation and the massive amount of money, your money, that is going to this Ukrainian war effort. Now, why? I've mentioned this before. Uh, This represents a fundamental failure with how Washington does business, and it has to do with lobbying. Now, we know what's happened. Putin's decision to launch this invasion of Ukraine has united a whole bunch of the world in condemning this assault on a foreign country. Now, in Ukraine, the war has already caused a lot of destruction, a whole lot of death, a lot of displaced people, a lot of refugees. But behind the headlines of these foreign policy decisions lies a major, little-discussed factor in foreign policy, lobbying. Nearly every action the government has taken regarding Russia and Ukraine has been the object of considerable attempts at influence by U.S.-based lobbyists for Ukraine. And Ben Freeman has written extensively for this. He's issued a report for the Quincy Institute. You can read it on their website. I may link to it as well. But nine organizations were registered under FARA to work on behalf of Russian clients. Eleven were working for Ukrainian contacts. Now, 
Um, the Ukraine, the um, those organizations reported making 21 contacts on behalf of their Russian clients and 13,541 contacts on behalf of their Ukrainian contacts. Now, the Ukrainian lobbying efforts add up to more than four times the amount of work the Saudi lobby among the largest foreign lobbies in Washington and other prominent groups have reported in any year. Um, The pro-Ukraine lobby appears to have achieved far more contacts than the the pro-Russia lobby. And you see, with the billions of dollars that they are getting in your money, that appears to be lobbying money well spent. So the message here is, if you are an oppressed people somewhere in the world, the best thing that you can do to get the United States on your side is hire the right lobbyists. Uh, before we get to Roger Stone, I'll play you this video that the Quincy Institute put out of Ben Freeman describing how lucrative lobbying for foreign countries is for these lobbyists. And you know who make the best paid lobbyists? Former members of Congress. This, again, is the same situation as the pork in the defense bill. The failures of policy here are really a failure of how Washington works. And it's why, in my view, we need wholesale reform of the legislative process, the budgetary process, and why Washington needs a a, a colonic, quite frankly. Not just in terms of personnel, uh, meaning it's more than just elect the other guy. We have to change the process of how the sausage is made. This is Ben Freeman on uh, lobbying in Congress for more defense money and how it goes. I'll let you hear this, and then we'll be back in just a moment with Roger Stone straight ahead. This January, as Russian forces amassed on Ukraine's border, the U.S. Congress began targeting major Kremlin-connected banks with sanctions. When Sovacom Bank, Russia's ninth-largest bank, found itself a target, it hired D.C.'s Mercury Public Affairs, which deployed two former members of Congress, Senator David Vitter and Representative Toby Moffitt, to lobby former colleagues on their behalf. But when Russia invaded Ukraine in February, that contract died. So, too, did the contracts of 11 other lobbying and public relations firms who were working for other Russian clients. Since 2016, Russian oligarchs, banks, and gas companies have spent around $182 million to influence U.S. policymakers. In the process, they bought the services of former American members of Congress and other key government officials. So the question is simple. Should former members of Congress be allowed to spin through the revolving door of public service and then go to work on behalf of foreign governments and companies? It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Been two weeks gone and he thought he'd stop at Webbs and have him a drink before he went home to her. Andy Wolo said hello and he said hi, what's doing? Woe said sit down, I got some bad news, it's gonna hurt. Said I'm your best friend and you know that's right, but your young bride ain't home tonight. Since you've been gone, she's been seeing that Amos boy said. Got mad and he saw red, and 
And he said, boy, don't you lose your head Cause to tell you the truth, I've been with her myself That's the night that the lights went out in Georgia That's the night that they hung an innocent man Vicki Lawrence, the night the lights went out in Georgia. Some people are speculating that what went on in Georgia in the aftermath of the 2020 election could spell some big trouble, not only for President Trump, but for my colleague, uh, Mayor Rudy Giuliani. That is one of the many subjects we will throw at uh, Roger Stone, who has worn so many hats over the years. All of them happen to be fashionable. He is a New York Times bestselling author. He is a former Trump advisor. He is a uh, podcast host. We'll tell you how you can listen to his show. And he is someone who was pardoned uh, by President Trump after being convicted. Roger, it is great to talk with you again. How have you been? Great to be with you, Frank. Uh, convicted uh, in a baseless, politically motivated witch hunt, just to be clear. Well, some people are trying to draw some parallels between your trial and conviction and the recent trial and conviction of Steve Bannon for contempt of Congress. This was Steve Bannon last week after he was found guilty in this contempt of Congress case. I only have one disappointment, and that is the gutless members of that show trial committee, the J6 committee, didn't have the guts to come down here and testify in open court. Now, um, I don't know your view of Steve Bannon these days, although given the role that he played in your trial, I could certainly guess as to your view of Steve Bannon. What was your reaction to the verdict in the Bannon case? Well, first of all, is the fact that Steve Bannon can be heard speaking. As you know, uh, Frank, I was gagged by a federal judge for 18 months. So I wasn't allowed to defend myself in any public forum like this one. Uh, Bannon was not subjected to such a gag. Look, I've been very clear about this. Uh, The New York Post correctly reported that Bannon perjured himself at my trial, that in his sworn testimony before the House Intelligence Committee, he insisted that he had never spoken to me regarding WikiLeaks or Julian Assange or allegedly uh, stolen emails. That is accurate, by the way. Yet in my trial, uh, he said that he had spoken to me about those matters essentially every time we spoke on the phone in 2016. Uh, But I have to be honest with you, Frank. I have uh, the Bible teaches us to forgive those who have trespassed against us. Uh, And after a lot of prayer and thought and putting aside my Sicilian nature, um, (laughs) I have uh, I'm not condoning what Bannon did. I'm not. Uh, I'm not approving it, obviously, in any way. I'm certainly not forgetting it. Um, But at this juncture, I have, as a good Christian, I've forgiven him. I'm actually praying for him because he was and is being persecuted by the exact same people who persecuted me. Essentially, uh, his uh, lawyer, David Schoen, who's terribly able, uh, extremely capable attorney, uh, summed it up when he said, the judge disallowed any possible defense, which is exactly what was done to me. So uh, I couldn't argue, uh, even though the underlying premise of my indictment was that WikiLeaks had hacked to the Democratic National Committee uh, and stolen documents, I could have used forensic evidence and expert testimony to prove that there never was any online hack. But the judge denied me that right. I could have argued uh, uh, for a selective prosecution. Uh, Many people have lied to Congress about substantially more important issues uh, that I allegedly lied about. In fact, 
I would argue that any misstatement I made to Congress hid no underlying crime. In other mm. words, it wasn't uh, it wasn't material. It wasn't relevant. It wasn't even interesting. It was a frame job put together to pressure me to testify falsely against Donald Trump, which I, of course, refused to do. In this particular case, I must say that I don't really understand uh, Bannon because I was subpoenaed to the January 6th committee. I fulfilled my legal obligations under that subpoena, but I showed up in Washington and I asserted my Fifth Amendment right not to answer questions, not because I did anything wrong, not because I have anything to hide, but simply because I have a lot of firsthand experience with the congressional Democrats' ability to take innocuous, right. immaterial, well, or irrelevant things you say and twist them into a crime. Well, th- that's precisely my question. I mean, it seems like a pretty open and shut case. You know, um, you usually, once you fail in your op- opportunity to quash uh, a subpoena, you have to adhere to the subpoena, whether the subpoena is for something that you think is a legitimate investigation or not, just as you did. Why would Bannon... Um, not just have adhered to the subpoena and then pled the pled the Fifth Amendment when he had to go before Congress? It's an excellent question. Of course, he later tried to revise his position, saying that he had acted uh, on the advice of counsel, and the counsel's advice was incorrect, and therefore he agreed to now be willing to testify. Unfortunately, there are no do-overs right. uh, in, the, in the D.C. court system. Uh, he has a hostile judge. He has a hostile jury. Uh, he was not allowed to mount any defense whatsoever. He probably does have a reasonable chance on appeal, but that could take two years and cost millions of dollars. Meantime, he's looking at a minimum of six months and a maximum of 18 months uh, or two years, I guess. Uh, and I would not be surprised because this is a highly politicized case. Uh, to see him get a two-year sentence. I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. So if you are Hunter Biden, uh, you can lobby without registering for China, Russia, uh, multiple uh, other countries uh, for which they sent Paul Manafort to jail, but nothing will happen to you. You can evade millions of dollars of taxes, but nothing will happen to you. But if you refuse to adhere to a congressional subpoena, well, then they'll put you in jail. Now, Eric Holder was held in contempt of Congress. He refused to testify about the fast and furious gun running operation. He was not uh, sentenced to prison. He wasn't even tried. Uh, There were no criminal uh, uh, proceedings brought against him. Lois Lerner at the IRS, Mm. she refused to testify about whether there had been political bias at the IRS and whether some conservative organizations were being targeted for harassment by the IRS. No criminal proceedings were brought against her. So uh, the bottom line of this this is no Trump supporter, no Republican, no non-Democrat is going to get a fair trial in the District of Columbia. And Mr. Bannon should have thought about that before he decided to the subpoena. Uh, last question about Steve Bannon, and then I want to pick your brain on a, a few other things and give people and an opportunity. This is one key, one key point here, and mm-hmm. that is wearing three shirts and having six pens clipped to your shirt <laughs> does not make you immune 
to conviction in the District of Columbia. And then I want to I want to open up the phones to give uh, listeners who uh, might have questions for you an opportunity to ask them. 800-848-9222 if you have questions for Roger Stone, 800-848-9222. Now, I know Steve Bannon's lawyer who you just referenced, David Schoen, and I was introduced to him through you. He also represented President Trump in his second impeachment trial. I've noticed that uh, Steve Bannon also has a a podcast slash radio show called War Room. And I actually worked with you when you were uh, producing a podcast and a radio show called War Room. I I do wonder, what is it about Steve Bannon that he seems to be following your lead on the name of his show, his attorney, and even the kind of rhetoric that he uses when being prosecuted by the Department of Justice? Does he have stone envy? Uh, It's certainly possible, uh, but uh, look, he has uh, built a successful podcast. I don't know what's going to happen to that podcast when he's in the slammer, uh, but I don't think they'll be letting him do his daily show from his cell. Uh, I I do think that that many, many people have rallied to his side because they correctly see this as a political prosecution. Uh, But look, I... uh, Let's move on from the Steve Bannon Fair enough. question. Okay. I've, I've stated my position. All right. Uh, the January 6th committee, uh, I know your feelings of the members of the committee and how they've uh, conducted these hearings. Irrespective of uh, what you think of the committee in general, politically, as a political analyst, which I don't think there's many people on either side of the aisle that have more experience in that area than you do, Do you think the revelations from the January 6th committee about President Trump and his behavior, not only on the 6th, but in the aftermath of the election, do you think they will serve to hurt Donald Trump politically? And do you think they will serve to hurt his legacy in the long term? First of all, uh, Frank, let me say the Adam B. Schiff Award for Baseless Smear goes to Representative Jamie Raskin. Uh, this is the same act all over again. If you saw Pencil Neck yesterday on uh, Face the Nation, he once again implied uh, that he had seen some evidence that I was a link between the Trump White House uh, and extremist groups. There is no such link. Uh, yes, it's true that I do know President Trump personally. Yes, it's also true that I know individual members of the Proud Boys. And I came in contact with members of the Oath Keepers. That proves absolutely nothing. That's called guilt by association. You may have been seen. You may have seen the hearings, Frank, when uh, this woman Cassidy Hutchinson said that it was her understanding. Notice the formation of the words here. Uh, it was her understanding that President Trump instructed White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to call Roger Stone and General Flynn on January fifth, and then. Liz Cheney says, to find out what was going to happen on January 6th. That is a contemptible lie. That conversation never took place. I've never spoke to Mark Meadows on the phone in my entire life. I did meet him once in 2019 when he was a congressman. Uh, But, of course, Shifty Schiff will tell you, well, the investigation continues. Let's be very clear. Any claim, assertion, or implication that I knew advance about was involved in or condoned any illegal activity on January 6th is categorically false. And there is no text message, no phone call, no email, no encrypted message, no documentary film footage that will show 
otherwise. There is no witness that can say otherwise. It's a, it's a total smear. I'm clickbait at my advanced age. I've become clickbait. Now, we love it. Even banned from social media uh, when all we have to do is mention that you, you might come on and forget about it. We see the streaming numbers go through the roof. And we're going to give people an opportunity to ask questions of you in just a second. 800-848-9222. I have to ask you about this. You've been following the uh, – you, you were the person, I believe, that coined the term stop the steal. Now, you initially coined it to apply to the movement to deny President Trump the Republican nomination if he got the most votes, which – some delegates and some Republican Party insiders were talking about in 2016. In the aftermath of 2020, it came to apply largely to folks that believe that the election was stolen, that Biden didn't properly win. There was a report uh, released this week called Lost Not Stolen, a new 72-page report from a group of uh, prominent conservative legal and political scholars, many of whom I believe you know, uh, John Danforth, Ted Olson, federal judges, retired federal judges like Mike McConnell, Michael Luddig, Thomas Griffith, uh, Republican election lawyer Ben Ginsburg, a number of others. And they uh, claim in this report to do a state-by-state refutation of the claims circulated about voting results in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Based on what you've seen, not only this report, but all the evidence that's come out over the course of the last two years, do you still have questions about Biden having legitimately won the election? And what is your view of who the proper winner of the 2020 election was at this moment? First of all, on that list of people you just read, which one of them supported Donald Trump for president when he was a Republican nominee in 2016? The answer would be none of them. So you have a neocon report, which I just think is wrong. Every single day, we actually see more and more evidence of irregularities uh, and anomalies in the results of the 2020 election. I'm sorry, stopping the counting at three o'clock in the morning in six states at the same time and suddenly finding 300,000 new ballots in, say, Detroit, that looks uh, very, very fishy to me, uh, it, particularly when they're 100 percent for Joe Biden and none of them are for uh, Donald Trump. So when they say, well, the courts rejected those arguments, no, Frank, that's not true. The courts refused to hear the arguments. They rejected the case, but they didn't hear the case and reject the evidence. So I think it is uh, still at this point, although there's been no judicial decision, I think there's a substantial evidence uh, of election fraud uh, and that, that it uh, that the media is so disciplined about uh, they're saying, oh, that's the big lie. No, the big lie is that there is no evidence. I think there's overwhelming uh, evidence. As far as Stop the Steal is concerned, let me be very clear. I stole it from Dwight Eisenhower. His people used it at the 1952 convention uh, when they successfully uh, knocked off the front runner, Senator Robert Taft from Ohio. Uh, They went into the credentials committee and unseated Taft delegates in Mississippi, Louisiana and Texas, tilting the convention to Dwight Eisenhower, who went on to become president. Uh, So Stop the Steal is not my invention. It was a slogan actually invented by uh, former U.S. Attorney General Herbert Brownell, a mainstay of the Republican Party of New York, who had been counsel to Governor Tom Dewey and uh, the manager of Eisenhower's floor operation at the 52 convention. Uh, I did believe for a short period of time that when Ted Cruz uh, and John Kasich and Jeb Bush teamed up 
there was going to be an effort within the Credentials Committee to uh, rob the nomination from Donald Trump. The Republican National Convention is, in fact, governed by its own rules. That's exactly how Eisenhower stole the nomination from Taft, and it was at least theoretically possible. I never trademarked the name. I don't own it. Other people began to use it uh, in uh, in 2020. Um, there was uh, uh, there was uh, a number of lawsuits uh, against me and Donald Trump in 2016 uh, regarding the activity of Stop the Steal. We prevailed in five different federal courtrooms. Uh, there was never any attempt to intimidate voters by conducting exit polls after people had voted to try to check the accuracy of the machines. Uh, that never gets written about either. Right. So, um, yes, I do think that the, I, I still believe that the president is correct and that there was substantial fraud in the 2020 election. All right. See, under the U.S. Constitution, I'm allowed to say that and think it. That's not seditious. It's not treasonous. Uh, it's the exact same position Hillary Clinton took in 2016. All right. A lot of folks eager to talk with you. If you want to try and jump on board with a question, 800-848-9222. I'm going to go to folks in the order in which they've been holding. Uh, Al in Yonkers, you're on with Roger Stone. Yeah. Hi, Frank. Hi, uh, Roger Stone. Uh, Roger, I just wanted to ask you, you know, I just first wanted to say that myself and my family and people I know who I I speak to about uh, politics on a national level, we we thought it was real low uh, low that the uh, federal authorities came to your house in Florida at an early hour and arrested you like they did. Uh, that was really done in poor taste. And my other thing I wanted to ask you is when the president uh, pardoned you on uh, the charges you were convicted on, I believe, uh, perjury, but when the president cleared you on uh, – pardoned you – uh, paying for those attorneys, did it cost you a small fortune? <laughs> okay, let's take that uh, uh, in order. First of all, I agree with you. My lawyers had been in touch with the special counsel's office. This was a white-collar crime. I have no previous record. Normally, you would simply inform my attorneys that I would be charged and I would be allowed to turn myself in. 29 heavily armed, fully SWAT-clad FBI agents stormed my home at 6 o'clock in the morning for the benefit of the CNN cameras. Uh, yes. And um, CNN, without any question, had advance notice of uh, my arrest because I was arrested at 6.06. And at 6.11, Sarah Murray of CNN sent a copy of my sealed indictment to my attorney by text. Now, how wow. did she have a, a, a document that was sealed until 9.30 that morning? If you go to the metadata uh, tags on that document, which had no timestamp or court markings on it, uh, you have the initials of the man who wrote it, Andrew Weissman, meaning he leaked the government's plan to uh, to uh, to execute a search and arrest warrant, which is in itself a felony. That was all meant to pressure me to testify against President Trump, which I refused to do. Uh, yes. In the legal proceeding, to try to defend myself, I lost my home my car, wow. my savings, uh, most of my insurance, uh, and for 18 months, my ability to make a living whatsoever. Uh, wow. And the, you also get the aftermath. My wife and I have been sued in 17 separate, totally baseless, totally meritless, totally groundless, 
unsubstantiated but very, very sensationalized civil suits. I have prevailed in six. I will prevail in all of them. But if you don't hire a lawyer to defend you, then they they issue a default judgment against you. So folks can help me by going to stonedefensefund.com, stonedefensefund.com. Uh, I will never stop fighting. Thank you, Al. 800-848-9222. Russ is in White Plains. Hello, Russ. Hey, Frank. Roger, is it fair to compare your peripheral involvement in January 6th to your front seat involvement in the count that, halting the count in Florida in 2000? And do you think that these three bad seeds that Trump elevated to the Supreme Court with their abrupt rulings on abortion, guns, and religion will be Trump's undoing in 2024? And I voted for Trump in 2020. Thank you, Roger. Uh, uh, let me address uh, the famous Brooke Brothers riot. The claim that, uh, that a mob closed down the recount of ballots in Miami-Dade County is false. Uh, there was an attempt uh, by Democratic officials to remove a sheaf of ballots that had already been recounted three times and take them to a room with no observers, uh, at no windows, and no doors. That's a violation of the Florida State Sunshine Act. But when the Democrats finally figured out that they could not glean any new votes from a pile of ballots that had already been counted three times, they threw in the towel. And, of course, George W. Bush became president. So the idea that, that a, a mob uh, intimidated people into stopping the count, that is categorically false. Uh, secondarily, um, your, your question uh, about the court, um, first of all, I, I don't think in the end that the Roe v. Wade decision is going to have the kind of political implications that everybody believes it will. Majority of people in the country are for legal abortion, but they're also in favor of a number of restrictions on abortion. The last Gallup poll showed 4% of voters said it was the number one issue on their agenda. Given gasoline prices, food shortages, uh, and, uh, and hyperinflation, uh, I really don't think that this tilts the, the midterm elections uh, to the Democrats. Uh, I was surprised by the road decision. I most certainly did not see it coming. Uh, I don't see, um, uh, I, I, do, I do think uh, that, the, uh, that the Republicans are still favored based on the economic indicators going into the next election. David is in the Bronx. Hello, David. Yes, good evening, Frank. Uh, Mr. Stone, there's a simple way to, to get the to clear the air about whether President Trump knew he was going to lose the election, which I believe he was well aware of in advance. I believe you were well aware of that advance. Michael Flynn, the whole list of characters. Why don't you guys release Trump's internal polling data from between the first impeachment and election day? That could fix all these contentions that you keep making about the election being stolen. Uh, polling is extraordinarily volatile, uh, and it's also not always accurate. The polls all showed Hillary Clinton would win in 2016. She lost. So I'm not sure the polling that you seek uh, would prove anything uh, whatsoever. I don't Why not release this? it then? Uh, I, it's not Why up to not me whether it's, it's not. I'm not opposed to it being released. How do you like that? But I don't, I don't possess it, so I'm not capable of releasing it. In fact, I never saw any of it. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, hi, Roger. Uh, 
you know, now that the southern border border is uh, fairly porous, do you see people not only from Central South America, but potentially from anywhere globally, China, fentanyl, dirty bombs, diseases, bioweapons, secret agents, et cetera, et cetera. What, What do you see this could bloom into potentially? Well, we certainly have a fentanyl epidemic uh, in the United States. We have a crime epidemic. Our southern border seems to be completely open, and I think that is uh, extraordinarily dangerous. One of the phenomena that we see here uh, in Florida is any citizen can walk into the Department of Motor Vehicles where you can register to vote, uh, and nobody asks you for any proof of citizenship uh, when you do that. So uh, I think it is entirely possible that a substantial number of people who are not legally eligible to vote will be allowed to vote. Uh, Beyond that, if you don't have a border, you don't have a country. Uh, The current crime epidemic and the fact that fentanyl is more plentiful and easier to find than baby formula, Mm. that's scary as hell. 800-848-9222. Chris is in the Catskills. Chris, you're on with Roger Stone. Outstanding opening monologue, Frank. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Stone, in the 2008 documentary about the downfall of Elliot Spitzer, you were interviewed and you answered a particular question about whether you had anything to do with uh, information being leaked to the right uh, parties in the media. You answered with a rhetorical enthymime. I was wondering if you would care to share a little bit more. Also, I wanted to ask you, what do you think that the ceiling is of a politician who just is a pure policy wonk and they're just they're taking a problem solving approach, uh, analyzing issues and problems plaguing society, the country and the world. And then they're presenting uh, potential solutions that could mitigate and solve these problems. How far, given how dirty politics is, what's the farthest they could advance in today's world? Thank you. Uh, All right. A two-part question. Um, I've been very forthright about the fact that I heard that Elliot Spitzer was uh, was, uh, uh, entertaining prostitutes and paying prostitutes at the same time that he, as attorney general, was busting other guys uh, for paying and playing with prostitutes. And therefore, the issue here is hypocritical. And yes, I had my lawyer write a letter to the FBI. That's a matter of public record. Uh, I, I am not. Uh, I, I, I don't know where that leaked from, uh, but as you know, uh, he was forced to resign. Uh, on the other question, uh, as to our political system, money is the mother's milk of politics. Uh, I worked in Washington. I spent, you know, 30 years in the corroded rectum of the two-party system. Uh, and if you have the right lobbyists and the right connections, virtually anything in this system uh, can be purchased. Uh, the war in Ukraine being a perfect example of that. just seems odd to me that we would ship $40 billion to Ukraine when we won't spend $2.5 billion to seal our southern border. Yeah, and how. Um, Roger, let me squeeze in two quick questions before we go back to the calls, since we, we only have a few minutes left. One, 
Uh, obviously, I know you're a great admirer of President Trump, but you're also a Florida resident. And you've had sort of a ringside seat for Ron DeSantis's elevation from winner in a nail biter of an election to national political figure. There have been some polls uh, out that uh, seem to be pretty encouraging for Ron DeSantis and may present a challenge for President Trump if those two go head to head in a primary. In your view, uh, as somebody that uh, has analyzed polls for a living for literally decades, as a, as a Trump supporter, are you at all concerned at, at the prospect of a DeSantis-Trump primary? Uh, I think uh, Ron DeSantis has the prerogative to run if he wishes. If he runs, I think Donald Trump will defeat him. Uh, I would not put too much stock in the poll that was put on the front page of the New York Times, the New York Times Siena College poll. It seems to be out of line with a number of other polls taken in the same time period showing Trump as an overwhelming favorite. Uh, He was leading DeSantis by 35, for example, I think it was in the Harvard uh, Harris poll. Uh, I still think Trump is in the driver's seat. Uh, DeSantis has to get reelected. And that is not as easy as it may appear. Florida is not a red state. It is a purple state. It swings between blue and red. Uh, and I still believe that race will be close. So you, th- you think Charlie uh, Chris could give DeSantis a run for his money? Well, if I'm Charlie Chris, the first question I ask Ron in a debate is, will you pledge to remain as governor for four years, or are you going to just use Florida as a stepping stone to run off and run for president? It's a very tough question to answer when you're asking people to reelect you governor. I know a lot of people who really, really like DeSantis, but don't want him to leave as governor. He's young enough to be president someday. Uh, I have a particular beef here because historically people need to understand Donald Trump made Ron DeSantis. He was an unknown congressman. Uh, The the, the, uh, state agriculture commissioner uh, had the endorsement uh, of every Republican county chairman, every Republican state legislator, every member of the Republican congressional uh, delegation from Florida, with the exception of Matt Gates, uh, and DeSantis uh, essentially utilized the Trump endorsement uh, to overcome all of that to become the nominee. Then Trump had to campaign in Florida in the closing weeks, twice in the final two weeks, to drag Ron DeSantis over the finish line, and he won by a mere 30,000 votes. So I'm a great believer in gratitude uh, in politics. I'm a great believer uh, in loyalty. I think Ron DeSantis owns his governorship to Donald Trump, and he should cut him a wide berth if the former president wants to run. Last question, Roger. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is going to be the latest politician to answer the Atlanta prosecutor commanding this investigation over the uh, attempts to change the outcome of what happened in Georgia in 2020. So Kemp is going to testify on Monday. There's also been subpoenas issued to Rudy Giuliani, Lindsey Graham, 16 Georgia Republican leaders uh, were sent letters. Where do you think this Georgia investigation goes? And do you think it could be problematic for President Trump? Well, um, I don't. First of all, I think it is a highly partisan investigation. I'll tell you, it was problematic. The decision by the Wisconsin Supreme Court last week, they said the drop boxes and the mail-in voting was completely illegal and therefore essentially voiding the Wisconsin results. Uh, there, If you look at the number of people watching the January 6th hearings, 
despite what you might read in some uh, media outlets, the numbers are not impressive. And I'm convinced they're overwhelmingly people who already despise uh, Donald Trump. Uh, Whether or not the Democrats can, through these hearings, convince the Justice Department to charge Donald Trump with some crime that would eliminate him legally as a potential candidate for president is the big question on the Mm. table. Roger, going to have to end it there. It is always interesting talking with you. I'll look forward to our next rendezvous on the radio or in person. Great, Frank. Many thanks. Thank you. Roger Stone. You can learn more about what he's up to at uh, stonezone.com. Uh, or the uh, re- the website whoframedrogerstone.com. Uh, both of those places will uh, give you a lot of interesting information about what Roger's up to these days. This is The Other Side of Midnight. If we didn't get to your question and you have a comment, you're welcome to call in at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I'm Frank Moreno. So uh, coming up in our third hour, we are going to chat with Zena Hassel. There's a lot of other interesting stories that uh, that we want to get to. And uh, we'll take your calls as well at 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. You know what's interesting is, you know, I spend most of the time, the hours that I spend speaking, I spend speaking publicly to tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people around the country, most of them strangers, right? Most of my thoughts I have on the air talking to, you know, thousands and thousands of people. And so uh, just yesterday, uh, the president of the WABC Long Island division, Frank McKay, he asked me to uh, speak at this event that he's having August 12th. As soon as we get the details about it, I'll tell you about it, but it's it's going to be out there on uh, on Long Island, all the way in eastern Long Island, and I'll tell you about it. But it's funny. I, this is not for weeks, and, you know, I'm already a little nervous about it because this kind of an event, I've been to this event before when Curtis Lewa has spoken and other prominent politicians and media personalities, and they always kill and all I can think is, well, I have no idea what I'm going to say. So uh, I, uh, if you want to go to that event, email me and we'll put you on the list. For, it's going to be in uh, Deer Park. Uh, we'll put you on the list for when it happens. It'll be free. And uh, I think there's some food and stuff involved, too. So you can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. But because I'm – even though I speak every day for four hours and, you know, I'm going to speak at this thing probably for ten minutes – Because I'm now a little nervous about this, about not being a letdown to the kind of crowd that comes to this event, now I'm going to use some of the week that I'm taking off in the beginning of August to do something I never do. Never. Not on the radio and not 
speaking in person. And we'll see how it works out. I'm going to actually plan out what I'm going to say, which I never do. Usually I like to kind of flow freely. But I feel obliged to say something substantive, something funny. We'll see what happens. All right, until next hour, in the words of the, be- the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population, get your dog or cats paid or neutered. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. You know what's interesting? I've talked about this before. I am less and less interested in going to live events in general. And I am, uh, especially concerts, I have never had a lot of of interest in, in going to concerts. But I am less and less interested these days. Now, are you up? on what is happening with this Bruce Springsteen situation. So Ticketmaster, which we'll talk about further in a second, Ticketmaster is selling tickets to Bruce Springsteen. And I know people get really fired up about Bruce Springsteen. I'm not taking anything away from him as a performer. And look, uh, we play that song that he does, Atlantic City, all the time. And uh, I realize that, uh, you know, he's very popular. He's just not really my thing necessarily. He's got some great songs. I just don't get – I get the appeal of Blue, uh, Bruce Springsteen. What I don't get is the cult-like enthusiasm for Bruce Springsteen. And now a lot of Bruce Springsteen fans are furious over the price of the tickets for his 2023 concert. Now – Floor seats to see Bruce Springsteen are ranging from $4,000 to $5,000 on Ticketmaster because of something called dynamic pricing that they offer that allows for extreme inflation from high demand. Even the nosebleed seats are going for more than $1,000 as platinum tickets, which are simply considered seats sold throughout all sections of a venue. So one Springsteen fan on Twitter spotted tickets going for $1,125 for an upcoming Albany show, prompting a F-off tweet in response. John Palumbo said in a video rant over the prices, I'm rich, and I think that's effing crazy. So you have this situation where Bruce Springsteen, who fancies himself as this champion of the working class is allowing Ticketmaster 
to sell tickets for these seats, including for not very good, not very good views, for thousands of dollars. And almost a bigger slap in the face to these inflation weakened customers is that Ticketmaster claims that the dynamic method aims to price tickets closer to the face value. I mean, come on. Who are they trying to fool with this stuff? This is nuts. Uh, And a lot of fans are speaking out about this. Kelly Law, the Twitter user, said, Dear kids, I just spent your inheritance on Springsteen tickets. Love, Mom. But Bruce is only the latest artist who's had their show blinded by the light. I know that's a, 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 a musical pun of absurd inflation at the hands of Ticketmaster. Fans spotted that Paramore tickets for an upcoming Chicago show, meaning the band Chicago, not the city, were billed at $8,018. Artists like Drake, Taylor Swift, Harry Styles have had their prices soar beyond reason. Earlier this month, Drake fans had to cough up between $573 to $1,400 to see his Young Money reunion show in Canada. Harry Styles fans were irate in May when prices went above $1,000. And Swifties, that's what they call people that follow Taylor Swift, lamented in 2018 that tickets originally priced at $595 were selling just below $1,000. Around the time of that Taylor Swift situation, the dynamic pricing was even called out by other ticket sales services. Now, look, I recognize that we live in a capitalist country. And if you have popular performers like Taylor Swift or Bruce Springsteen, that they're going to it's going to be expensive to go see these people. But if the venue and the artist is only getting a certain price, five hundred fifty, six hundred dollars, then and these third party ticket promoters, Ticketmaster, which I think has partnered now with Live Nation, are able to sell for sell these tickets for two and three times that. Is that anything more than ticket scalping? I don't think that it is. I think this is ticket scalping, which if you did it in front of the venue and tried to sell these tickets for double or three times what these prices actually say on the ticket themselves, they'd throw you in jail. But yet when Ticketmaster does it on a phone or through a website, all of a sudden that's just business. That's just legal business practices. And I'll tell you who I give a lot of credit to, and that is Democratic Congressman Bill Pascrell, who is calling out Ticketmaster for holding essentially a monopoly on concert tickets. And you know what? It does look like they have a monopoly on it. He's criticized what Ticketmaster and Live Nation is doing. Springsteen fans are complaining about these high ticket prices, some tickets costing $5,000. And Pascrell says, quote, the market is not transparent, and that's why you have to investigate. We hope that this is an example of why we need to change in the ticket business, particularly in the secondary market. I think he's absolutely right. Uh, One, I think Bruce Springsteen, who claims to be such a a fighter for the working class, should speak up and say, look, I'm all for making money. I'm all for the venue making money and the band making money. But um, I don't think you should sell these tickets for 10 times face value. 
I think he should speak up, and I do think there ought to be an investigation here into this monopoly that Ticketmaster and Live Nation have. The fact that Ticketmaster and Live Nation saw no problem with tickets reaching $5,000 each, I think is very telling. Tell me what you think. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Carol in New Jersey. Hello, Carol. Hi there, Frank. Sorry, I haven't called you in a while. Yeah, people have been worried about you, Carol. I hope you're okay. Yeah, I am. I am. But I'm wearing this medieval contraption on my waist. Uh, Hopefully, this is going to be over soon. I'm supposed to go see the orthopedist. But I was in and out of the hospital, actually, for a bit. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. I hope you're feeling better. Oh, yeah, definitely. I can walk now. I just don't like walking with this contraption on my leg. But anyway, um, I, I've been to several concerts over the years. I saw Kiss at Madison Square Garden. I saw ELO. Um, well, ELO I saw in Indiana because I was going to school there. But, um, yeah, I mean, this is getting ridiculous with these prices. You know, I mean... And you're right about Bruce Springsteen. He always claims to be uh, a champion of the people, but it's it's ridiculous, Frank, the, the prices now. I can't afford to go <laughs> with all the other things that are going on in my life right now. I can't afford to go. Well, and, and, and yeah, and thank you for the call, Carol. Don't get me wrong. I recognize that, uh, I can't stress this enough, that tickets to shows that people want to see are going to be expensive. And, okay, I mean, they should be expensive. That's what happens when you have a performer that's in demand. I think, though, that when you um, when you go to two and three times, five times, ten times what the face value of the ticket is, you're going beyond the free market. You're, 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 you're ripping people off. And you're using the fact that this monopoly, which Ticketmaster has with Live Nation, I think you're using the fact that they have such a monopolistic power within the ticket business, the, you're abusing the consumers. And it just it doesn't seem right to me. does not seem right. A couple other quick things, and then we'll return to your calls in just a second. We have uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven open lines if you want to comment, 800-848-9222. I came across this article in um, a, an interesting website called eatthis.com. Eatthis.com, is a, it's a great website. It's uh, I use it a lot for nutritional stuff. It'll tell you, all right, if you want to get a chicken sandwich or a hamburger, it'll give you the healthy option and the unhealthy option. It'll tell you, eat this, not that. And they have books and everything. It's a great website. It's fun. Um, and it's, it's really, really well done. But I came across this article because you know of my fondness for Tab and the mission that I've been on to try to bring back Tab, which the Coca-Cola company decided to discontinue two years ago. So they did this article, and I'm going to link to this right now so you can read it on my uh, on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash moranofan. That's facebook.com slash moranofan. On 12 sodas that were discontinued only to be brought back into production thanks to the passionate outpouring from fans. So one is very obvious. 
And I'm surprised that I didn't mention this when we were having our tab discussions a couple of months ago. Coca-Cola. Back in 1985, you remember what happened? They got rid of Coca-Cola Classic and they replaced it with this new sweeter product that they called Coke, New Coke. And uh, Coca-Cola tried to kill off its flagship product. Customers freaked out. They had to bring back the original Coca-Cola. Another one, Clearly Canadian. I didn't even know they still made Clearly Canadian. This was a moderately sweet beverage that duped us into thinking that we were drinking something healthy back in the 90s. It disappeared for a few years, but now it's back. It's back. You could drink it again. Crystal Pepsi was gone. Apparently, it's back this year. So um, that's uh, and there's a number of others. Fresca, the grapefruit flavored soda was a mainstay of American soft drinks for a big part of the 20th century. It disappeared for a couple of years. Fans went crazy and it's back. Same thing with New Coke. New Coke, uh, they they brought that back when people wanted to try it, when it got some attention due to uh, the television show Stranger Things. And one cola, you know, I used to really enjoy Jones soda. When I would uh, walk home from school, the local drugstores, I'd walk to the train station, had Jones, and they had all sorts of weird flavors. And um, Jones is now back. They re-released its their most controversial flavor ever, just in time for Thanksgiving last year, the turkey and gravy soda. Now, that's not my favorite flavor of Jones, but I'm glad that they're back. Jolt Cola which will help you pull an all-nighter whenever you need to. Jolt Cola was gone, and it was relaunched in 2017, and now you can get Jolt Cola. Hey, um, speaking of food, one thing I did want to mention is there was this study, and I am not surprised to see this, that found one in three admits stealing their coworkers' food from the office refrigerator. Now, I My belief is the following. I believe if you put something in the office refrigerator, there should be clearly defined rules that say you have to label it. And if your food is labeled, nobody should be able to touch it ever. If it's got your name on it or whatever, someone's name on it, no one should ever be able to touch it. If that food is unlabeled in the refrigerator, as far as I'm concerned... Especially at our workplace, where they put a lot of food in there, like yogurt and turkey pot pies for people to share and enjoy, leftovers, or I bring in egg salad. If that food is not labeled with someone's name on it, as far as I'm concerned, wild, wild west. Every man for himself, every person for himself, every non-binary person for themselves. If that, There ought to be a label on it, and that label, as far as I'm concerned, hands off. For everybody. But if there's no label, open open season on that food. You know who was the worst with this? It was Bob Grant. He made no apologies for taking whatever he wanted from the refrigerator. It, it does, didn't matter if it was labeled, unlabeled. He would he, he thought he was entitled to whatever was in that refrigerator. And uh, John Minnelli, the program director at the time, would have to say to somebody that was complaining about their lunch being eaten... No, don't worry. I'll buy you whatever you want. You could get a lunch. Let Bob have it. But uh, I think Bob went a little too far. But I'm not surprised 
at this. One in three admitting stealing their coworkers' food. I've everything's stolen. Everything's fair game. Everything's fair game if there's no label. I've stolen stuff from the refrigerator, but it's got to have no label. If it's got a label, then as far as I'm concerned, that's a bridge too far. 800-848-9222. Where do you come down on this map, Blaze? I agree, especially here because of the right. way everything is. Right. If it wasn't it's like that because we have so much food that comes in, right. especially like for the holidays, there are people that are working, uh, John, bring, John and Margo bringing food from Gristidi's, um, Thanksgiving. So it's here it has to be labeled or it is fair game. Absolutely. Simple. Last thing I'll mention here before we get to your calls, July is the best month to spot a UFO. I'm mentioning this. This has been on my list all all month, quite frankly. But where July is winding down, so I figured I'd let people know. July is the best month to spot a UFO, according to an analysis of the National UFO Reporting Center's database. So they've been around since 1974, and it's where the FAA recommend folks report UFO sightings. The analysis of the data was done um, by a, a website called I'mAPuzzle.com, which the FAA does not appear to have recognized as a reputable agency. But if you crunch this data, which goes all the way back to 1998, the puzzle site found that more UFO sightings are reported in July than any other month. But using that same data, it seems Virginia lags behind nearly every other state in the nation when it comes to reporting UFOs. Listen to this. Virginia has reported a paltry 2,526 UFOs since 1998. That's 29.23 per 10,000 people. That puts the state at number 42 for UFO reports. There could be more UFO sightings not included in the report. But I do wonder what's going on in Virginia that there's so few seen there and what's going on in July that uh, July is the best month to spot these UFOs. All right. You want to comment on food in the refrigerator, bringing back soda, UFOs, or these Bruce Springsteen tickets? Now's the time. 800-848-9222. Harold in Bayonne has been patiently holding. Hello, Harold. How you doing? Great, Harold. What's on your mind? Listen, I've seen Bruce Springsteen a bunch of times. It's ridiculous the prices you got to pay for tickets. But I, you know what? You got to sneak, in, sneak into the concerts. You know? Well, I mean, how do you do that? What's a good way to do that? Just walking, sneaking. The but isn't there security? Was, excuse me? Isn't there security at these concerts? Yes, but listen, the first concert I went to was 1978. I was 13 years old, the Grateful Dead. It was $8 for a ticket. $8 for a ticket. For first row. And now they want $1,000 for a ticket. It's ridiculous. I I don't disagree with you, Harold. I do not disagree. I I do disagree on the sneaking in. I'm not encouraging anybody to do that, but I agree that the prices are a little crazy. Joe is in Ron Kunkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank, another great show. i touching on two subjects. One, the soda. I still drink RC Cola. It, sometimes it'll appear in Stop and Shop. It's very hard to find. It brings me back to when I was a kid. My parents used to drink it. Um, as far as the tickets, I mean, I know I'm like you. I'm old school. I, my daughter wanted to go to her first concert with me. Um, I went to the mall. I was looking for a 
ticket master window. The girl made me feel like I was 90 years old and said, you, you know, you buy them on your phone. I was like, oh, all right. And then when I went on my phone, she wanted to go see uh, Pitbull. And I couldn't believe the, like, the nosebleed seats were going for 275 And then if you wanted to be mid, you know, mid-concert, you know, mid-field uh, over at Jones Beach, it was going for about 800 And if you wanted to be an orchestra, uh, a, a ticket was going for about 1900 and that's before all the fees. I, I went to checkout for mid-range tickets for me and my daughter. It almost be $3,000. I turned to my daughter and I told her, uh, I, we can't do this. We just physically can't. Even the cheap seats were like $600. It's yeah, ridiculous. And, and you, know what, you know what bothers me, Joe, and thanks you, thank you for sharing that. What bothers me is two things. Is One is the double standard, the legal double standard. What, you want to comment, Alex? You came in. Uh, don't leave. Um, one is um, the fact that if you were to do what Ticketmaster is doing on the street, you'd be arrested. And two is the fact that, you know, if you don't want to go the Ticketmaster Live Nation route, there's very little other options for you. They have a essentially a, a legal monopoly on the on the secondary market. And I don't think that's right. Alex, you're something of a musician yourself. Um, what are your thoughts on this whole situation or on, I don't know what you came in to comment on, but comment on whatever you like. Oh no, I, w- I was going to comment on the mm-hmm. tickets and I, I do think it is pretty ridiculous that a lot of these big artists charge so much money. I mean, it was, it was funny that Carol mentioned that she went to see kiss, you know, back in the day, I'm sure it wasn't this much, uh, you know, in the seventies or whatever, but when I went to see them in, in 2019, it was, I think I paid $200 in total for two tickets for me and my girlfriend at the time. And uh, it was it was pretty much nosebleeds. I mean, Madison Square Garden, mind you, in a big, big arena. But um, I paid maybe $50 to see a show with four bands at Madison Square Garden later in the year. Uh to go by myself, just to, whereas for Kiss, there was the only opener was like this painter guy, mm. which was pretty lame, uh, honestly. And I mean, not even Kiss in their prime. But so, how much of this is due to the artists, and how much of it is due to Ticketmaster? So, to, I'm sure Bruce Springsteen gets paid to perform at whatever venues he's contracted to perform at, and then the venues sell out, so they sell these tickets at face face value, and then Ticketmaster buys a whole bunch, and I guess individuals maybe can sell them on Ticketmaster as well. So is is now I do think Bruce Springsteen is a little bit at fault here for allowing tickets to his show to go for this, but is it really fair to blame the artists when it's Ticketmaster that's, that's bilking the consumer? I mean, I don't know necessarily how much it is Ticketmaster. I think in the case of KISS though, it's it's pretty obvious it's KISS. I mean those guys have been it been in it for the money from the very beginning. I mean they they offer this ridiculous like backstage experience for ten thousand mm. dollars to sit and talk with Gene Simmons and like get something like or, you know, you could get your guitar signed by Paul Stanley and have him play it uh, for one song during the set and then take a picture for it. $10,000. Interesting. All right. Yeah. 800-848-9222. Uh, we will um, get to more of your calls in just a moment, and then we'll go through your 
correspondence, your written correspondence in the mail. If you want to write to me, you can do so. Frank.morano at wabcradio.com. We'll try and get to as many of your comments as we can. Straight ahead. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. You can go see him. Those of you that are holding, we're going to get to you in a moment. Um, I, we're a show that takes pizza very seriously. And, uh, you know, whenever I interact with Kenneth, our, our telephone talent coordinator, I always get the sense that there's something missing in his life. And what I've come to the conclusion is it's because he's no longer able to eat cheese because of this unique allergy that he has to some of the things that are in cheese. And I feel like he is almost less of a full person because of it. Not in terms of him being deficient in some area, but I feel like he gets a little less out of life than the rest of us do. And you can understand why. Now, we get pizza here every every Friday. People enjoy it. And we get pizza, you know, in our house far too often. And I like to try different pizza places and hear stories about different pizza places. And there's so much drama when it comes to pizza. Now, what do you do with leftover pizza. What do you do? You're not going to throw it away. Especially if you order like we order in our house, you have a lot of leftovers. So there's always this debate about how to store pizza and how to reheat pizza. Matt Place, what do you do? I know you're doing a low-carb thing now, but when you ate pizza, how do you reheat pizza? It depends. If I want it right away, it's microwaved. If I want it the proper way, it's in the oven or a toaster oven. So, the proper way, oven. Well, let's say let's say, let's say all things are equal. Let's say you want it the proper way, toaster oven, toaster or, oven. or oven, regular oven, it's the same. Well, thing. which one? Which one do you pick? Um, the toaster oven. Toaster oven. Okay. I interviewed Nino Coniglio three years ago. You know who Nino Coniglio is? Nino Coniglio is an award-winning pizzaiolo. He's one of the co-founders of Williamsburg Pizza. The guy knows more about pizza than anybody that I've ever met in my life. Uh, He's part of the Brooklyn... He was the 2016 Pizza Maker of the Year in the whole country. He's part of the Brooklyn Pizza Crew. If you don't know about them, go to brooklynpizzacrew.com. A brilliant man. And to see him throw up dough in the air, it's it's just, it's a sight to behold. But when I talk to him about pizza, and we've got to get him in studio one of these days. Um, in fact, maybe we'll do that. Maybe we'll do that when I'm back from vacation in August. 
When I talk to him about pizza, it is like talking to Ted Williams about hitting. Not only do they have a passion and an expertise, but they have a way of explaining things so scientifically. I realize Ted Williams is dead or at least frozen and you can't talk to him now. But this is what I always pictured a conversation with Ted Williams about hitting being like. And so I asked this question to Nino Coniglio three years ago. And ever since he gave me this answer, this is how I've been reheating pizza at home. Listen to this. What's the best way to reheat pizza from a day or two? So, so first of all, when you're putting pizza in the fridge, don't just stick the box with the pizza in it in the fridge. You want to wrap it real tight. Like if you take, if you have leftover bread from like a good bakery, you want to wrap that stuff up in tinfoil or plastic wrap or this and that. To reheat it, I mean, the easiest way is to, you know, just preheat your toaster oven to as high as it could go and stick it in for about like a minute and a half to two minutes. I think the best way to go is. Uh, start off with a uh, cold nonstick or cast iron pan. Uh, turn the heat up. Put the slice in there. After about a minute, stick a um, uh, a top on there, and it'll steam it out a little bit. So the bottom's going to get crispy. The steam is going to kind of bring that dough back to life and mm. give you that like subtleness to it and heat up the cheese. And mm. then uh, enjoy yourself. So that's what I've been doing. I've been using that pan method. I came across this article today, and I've just linked to it on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash MoranoFam, from popsci.com. These are scientists, and they write about scientists, and they write about science in a fun way. And they ranked all of the methods for reheating pizza. Now, the microwave oven method, or as I call it, the science oven, that's not something that anybody uses However, there is this school of thought on the Internet that if you do put pizza in a microwave oven, you need to also put a mug of water in there at the same time, too. I guess it has to do with minimizing the amount of moisture that the the microwave oven takes from the crust. But apparently, you know, that's kind of a losing methodology as well. So they ranked and went through every possible method for reheating cold pizza. And they found three top-tier methods. The primary method is basically what Nino suggested, not what Matt Blaze is doing. And I'm surprised uh, Matt Blaze isn't doing this. But the official reheating method of the pizza subreddit calls for placing your cold pizza in an oiled, preheated, nonstick pan and cooking it for two minutes over medium to low heat. Then pour two drops of water, less than a teaspoon, into the pan as far from the pizza as you can get. Cover the pan with a lid and turn the heat to low. Cook it for another minute. You're done. Three minutes. Three minutes. Your slice is reheated. And it's and it, it works. So um, they found, the Pop Psy folks, that you may be tempted to try this with a cast iron pan, but they found a standard nonstick pan worked best. The crisp, the crust was crispy. The cheese, thanks to the steam from the water circulating under the lid, melted perfectly, and the slice was the perfect temperature to be eaten immediately. Um, then here was an interesting method. I never even heard of this method, but this ranks as one of the top tier methods. Use 
a hot tray in a hot oven, okay? Follow me. Follow me. Put a baking tray into your oven and heat it to 500 degrees Fahrenheit. If you don't want to clean the tray later, you can line it with aluminum foil. Once the oven has reached the proper temperature, use an oven mitt, take the hot tray out, and put your slices in it. Place the tray on the middle rack and cook it for five minutes. If your oven runs hot, um, cook it for the same amount of time at 450 degrees. So the only drawback of this is they had to let the pizza sit for a minute or two to cool down. But when it passed between the lips of the reviewers here, they experienced excellent crispiness, melty cheese, and a slice that was almost as good as new. So um, for what it's worth, one of the authors of this column considers this the best way to reheat the pizza. So again, it's not just stick it in the oven like Matt Blaze does. It's use a hot tray in a hot oven. So you got to heat the tray first. And this is the last one that I'll mention. And I have not had good luck with this method. I've tried it. But they said this is the quickest um, method of any acceptable method. Uh, Air fryer. If you want to reheat pizza in an air fryer, you put a slice of pizza into a cold air fryer, turn the heat to 400 degrees, and let it cook for five minutes. They put it directly on the air fryer tray, no foil, and it didn't make too much of a mess. The drip tray caught any excess. This combination of heat and time worked best for a lot of people, but given the variety of available air fryers, you may want a sweet spot. The sweet spot for temperature lies somewhere probably between 360 and 400 degrees, cooked for four to eight minutes. So this is by far the fastest of the top-tier methods. You won't have to wait for a pan or an oven to heat up. Just pop it in the air fryer and go. Five minutes later, you got a crisp, bubbly, delicious slice. Now, the middle tier of methods that they ranked on this article, and you can read the whole thing uh, on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash moranofan, is straight-up rebaking. Uh, put the pizza in an oven rack and rebake it. Then the microwave oven combo. You put it in the microwave for 30 seconds, then put it in the oven. Low and slow in the oven. That's another middle method. Here's the worst method. A very hot pan. If you heat a pan on your stovetop over high heat for a couple of minutes until it's really hot and then add the pizza, um, they tried this and they it was a disaster. And then the worst one was... Anything to do with a microwave, even microwaving it with a mug of water, uh, all sorts of other microwave disasters. It produces just a rubbery, rubbery crust. So if you have an alternative method, love to hear from you. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. John is in Freehold. Hello, John. Hey, what's up, Frank? Pleasure as always. Thanks. Uh, so uh, I was going to say about um, tickets, I think the best thing they should do is – there should no longer be Ticketmaster or Live Nation. I think every venue that decides to put on a show or bring someone, they should just split the profits between the band and the venue. There should be nobody else involved. Well, I, I can and understand then, that, right? Uh, I mean, I guess there I is a market for these third-party sellers, though. I mean, you if um, if people are willing to pay any amount of money, Certainly, there's going to be someone that's willing to be the middleman on this, right? 800-848-9222. Maxine is in Manhattan. Hello, Maxine. Hello, hello, Frank. Good morning. I can't stop thinking about Simone Gardens. 
I'll be having to settle for uh, some walnuts right now. I got to bring <laughs> my cholesterol down. But, you know, I wanted to comment on Bruce Springsteen and any of these other musicians. I, I think I think the whole thing with Live Nation and Ticketmaster and the prices is, is appalling, especially in this time that we are in where people can't put food on their tables. And why it also um, brings out the point between um, uh, the haves and the have-nots to charge such outrageous money. Maybe what could be done is, I know this might kind of sound idealistic, but redistribute some of that money. Let Bruce Springsteen and his team of people, his managers, I doubt that they would do it, but redistribute that money to the people who are paying or do a lottery for people who cannot afford those kinds of well, I agree with you. I think that's a, that's a great yeah. idea, Maxine. I completely agree with you. Uh, that makes sense to me. Mary Beth is on Long Island. Hello, Mary Beth. Hi. Um, my schedule has changed dramatically, so I've missed a lot of your programming, and I feel badly about that. Um, I turned it on today, and you were talking about leaving things in the company's refrigerator and labeling it. And I remember the first time I ever heard your show, you were asking your audience, you were hungry, and you said there really wasn't much around to eat, and there was a yogurt in there unlabeled, and you wondered if it would be okay for you to eat it. And I went, wow, I've come full circle with Frank, mm. and I'm glad to be listening again. I really am. Well, thank you. Do we have you back on your new schedule now? Are you going to be available late nights again now? Well, it's semi-back. Um, I do a lot of editing and writing, and a, a lot of projects have come in at one time, and they were due at a certain time during the day. So um, it, it really depends. But I, I so enjoy your Well, your thank program. you, that, That's very nice. We need you, though. So if you ever can't listen live, be sure to check out the podcast. Just subscribe to the podcast, The Other Side of Midnight with, uh, with Frank Morano. All right. Um, We will go through your mail. Uh, You can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. So this song is uh, is called Running Up the Hill by Kate Bush. Evidently, I've not seen the television program Stranger Things, but this song was big in the 80s and not even that big, I think. It was popular in the 80s. I don't even remember. It wasn't like a monstrous hit or anything like that. And so they played it on the TV show Stranger Things, and now everybody is playing it again. It has skyrocketed in popularity, and uh, it is tearing up the charts 30, 35 years after its release. So Same thing with Master of Puppets well. by uh, Metallica. Oh, is that right? Yeah, really? yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. Well, Metallica, though, I feel like has been 
pretty consistently popular. Well, yeah. If that song hasn't been popular since then. But uh, I don't think people have been routinely listening to Kate Bush over the course of the last three and a half decades. No, right? like I said, I, I was fully entrenched in music in, when this song came out. I don't remember the song at all. I mean, I mean, I I liked the song before Stranger. I started oh, watching Stranger Things. Oh, please! I don't believe that. <laughs> he knew it was song. Yeah, I, I don't believe. You know what? You are one of these guys. You you remember when the last episode of The Sopranos? Everybody was listening to Journey again and Don't Stop Believing. I heard from Come on, so many no people at the time though. that said, "Oh, well, I was listening to Journey like crazy even before The Sopranos." None of them were. And I don't believe that you were listening to Kate Bush at all. Just it, the, just this song. I haven't listened to anything else. That she's Journey's a lot more believable yes. than Kate yeah, Bush. No, I, I I don't I don't believe that. Like I said, I didn't even know who Kate Bush you, was. No, I don't remember the song Alex whatsoever. Alex seriously, you seriously never heard of Kate Bush. Diminished though? his credibility here. Um, uh, no I, one uh, ever believes anything I say. Well, n- now you see why. Now you see why. All right. Without further ado, I'm sure we're getting a lot of letters. About Alex's lack of credibility, it's time for... piece of mail comes to us via Facebook from Joe Ellen, who writes, Hi, Frank. First, I absolutely love your show. I'm third generation in my family to sleep with the radio on all night. I live 18 miles west of Boston, Massachusetts. My go-to station was WBZ Boston. Unfortunately, they foolishly did away with overnight live talk radio in late 2019, early 2020. I was lost. I found you at the other side of midnight, and have been a faithful listener ever since. You are amazing. Wow. Second, congratulations uh, to you and Rachel on Carmine. Finally, you recently talked about Top Gun and mentioned Duke Cunningham. My husband was in the Navy and served aboard the USS Corral Sea with him. Uh, Coral Sea. I want to let him hear the commentary from uh, the show. When you mentioned it, I'm going to send it. Then, uh, that was a, like a week or two ago, by the way, if you're in Boston, you should tell that station, WBZ, they should carry our show. They haven't nothing good that they're airing overnight, so you should reach out to them. Tell them to, reach, to carry our show. Then, Monday, Joe Ellen writes me again. Hi, Frank. I absolutely love that you want to di- encourage dialogue between Republican, Democrat, and independent people. We do need that dialogue. The us versus them thought process in this country will ultimately be our demise. You are the only person with any influence that I have heard want to take on this stance. There needs to be more. I register as an independent. I vote person, not party. However, I do lean Democrat, especially after having a family. Thank you for trying to keep your show a neutral zone. Well, that's very nice, Joe Ellen. Thank you very much. Uh, So I guess what Joe Ellen is saying, Frank Morano... American hero. I like it. Uh, I got an email here from Christopher who writes, I heard Juliet, a subject, yogurt. And then he says, I heard Juliet left the show because you kept eating all of her yogurt. LOL. Just kidding. Love the show. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that's funny. All right. Let's look at the snail mail. This is from Bob Hope. Uh, not Bob Hope. I wish it was from Bob Hope. 
from Bob Wolf from Hope Skills, who was a guest guest on this show, sent a thank you note for having him on the show. That's nice. See, that's classy. Frank, I'm grateful to you for having me on your show and for your continued support for what I do. Look forward to seeing you again. Bob Wolf. See, that's nice. That's straight out of the Bob Wolf playbook. This is Chris uh, via email who does not want his last name used. This was sent after the discussion that we had earlier about uh, the lobbying and the pork in the defense bill. Frank, thanks so much for covering the real stuff. It is amazing that someone in mainstream media is covering the stuff that really matters. Other than you, I really don't listen to most mainstream media outlets. Once again, don't use my last name. My employer sucks. Well, Chris, best of luck to you in getting a new employer. Let us go to the snail mail. This comes to us. This is a piece of snail mail from Massapequa. All right. Oh, boy. This is lengthy. Um, Okay. I love the handwriting here. This is from Darren in Massapequa. Dear Frank, the second page of this letter was not intended as a question. I was merely identifying myself. If you ever found yourself in a room with Robin Quivers, try casually holding up the different colored pages. Even the envelope upon which they came should produce a rather interesting reaction. Then um, it says, please don't read this page on the air, so I will honor that wish. Um, Okay, this is the strangest letter that I've ever gotten. I I don't get this at all. Uh, Okay, so I'm not saving this because I don't anticipate being in a room with Robin Quivers anytime soon. This is crazy. Throwing that away. All right. Back to the email, Denise writes of yesterday's show. Now, you got to understand, Denise in New York City, she has written me about two dozen letters over the last year and a half, each one of them saying some version of the same thing. Each one says, sometimes I think you're reasonable, and then you say or do X, and I realize what a right-wing hack you are, and I can't listen to you anymore. And I had to turn off the radio right then and there. She's written me about two dozen letters explaining to me when and why she's turning off the radio and why she can't listen to me anymore. This is the email that I received from Denise yesterday. Great show. Thank you. Now, I'm waiting for the, I'm waiting for the left hook here. Laughing my invisible, too-hot-to-wear socks off. You were right on the money about the shameful exploitation of a nothing situation. Poor whoever was in the Rosita suit. I admire your forthrightness. More, please. Thanks again, Denise. Wow. Wow. You could have uh, knocked me over with a feather after reading that. I was waiting for a P.S. that said something terrible. We got a lot of email yesterday about the Sesame Place uh, situation, and I'll get to as many as we can here. This is a snail mail here. This is from, doesn't say where. All right. Dear Frank. No, there's not even signed. Dear Frank, there's no question that you're a smart cookie and occasionally have some interesting things on. But as much as I resented Curtis from mocking you, I have to agree with him that you are a weenie. You go on (laughs) and on with topics that would be interesting for maybe 10 minutes, but become boring and annoying after a half hour. It's actually amazing how excited you become over mundane matters. Basically, you just like to hear yourself talk and talk and take so long to get to the point. And you don't curse, you say, goody-choo-shoes. 
You don't favor a political party. For God's sake, take a look around, take a stand on the horrible things going on. Our country is going down the drain. Also, you really think a black man should have taken over the Jeopardy show when, in fact, there are hardly any black contestants that qualify to be on there? <laughs> I didn't read these letters before. I'm reading these now in real time. Are there, are there any shows they haven't taken over? How about rooting for the white person? Or is that against your morals? Lastly, your answer guy is rude. All right. Well, you, you know what? I actually don't mind having that guy as a detractor. Uh, that guy strikes me as a horrible, horrible person. Um, Joe in Middletown writes, subject is an email, racist woman caller. Frank, I was listening to your show this morning at 4.40 a.m. when you fielded a, a call from a woman screaming about you being a racist regarding the Disney incident. Sesame Place, not Disney. Why did you engage this caller when it was obvious she was a demented person? She has a demented opinion and psychological issues and continued to rant about your obvious racist remark. In my opinion, your choice to keep her on the phone as long as you did was likely offensive to most people listening to Endure, especially we who just got up for the day. It provided an impression that you were defending yourself from a hatefully unfounded tirade of an insane, screeching person who has a personally dangerous anger for you, aside from her radical usage of fake narrative accusations. Made you look and sound very weak. Sorry you enabled it. All right. Well, by the way, my friend uh, Keith Spaulding, who is black, was prepared to put out a statement defending me as not being racist. So I was hoping to play that statement after that email, but... Keith Spaulding did whatever he could to reinforce every negative stereotype about black people, and he did not get me that audio in time. So I did not have that. Uh, meantime, Hank Purpura had a very different take on that exchange. He said, a subject now, email very simple. You handled that woman very well. Okay, thank you, Hank. Uh, let me try and get one more snail mail in here, and then, oh, what is this? This is a $100 Visa gift card. Who is this from? It just says my name. It says my name as the sender. To Frank from a fan for your new baseball team or for pizza for you and your coworkers. God's blessing for you and family. Oh, that's nice. $100 Visa gift card. That's nice. See, this is nice. An anonymous tip from a grateful listener. This is this guy or gal is a model for every listener out there, I must say. Now, that is very nice. Um, okay, let me squeeze in one more email here. Um, let me... Okay, uh, David, right... No, 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 that's kind of boring. Let's, let's squeeze in. Susan says, Hi, Frank, I would love your suggestions for hotel, restaurants, bars, casinos, a girl's trip, mid-60s, but we like to have fun, and we enjoy nice places, good food, and love a good cocktail. By the way, the subject here was Atlantic City. I enjoy you and your show. It's the perfect mix of information and entertainment. You discuss interesting subjects, have unique guests, and in the middle of the night when I can't sleep, you and your show are the perfect thing. Way better than TV. Thank you. Keep up the great show and enjoy your beautiful family. Well, I'll tell you what, Susan, uh, since she's planning a trip to Atlantic City in uh, either August or September, it says. 
I am going to send you my recommendations. But if anybody listening out there has recommendations for Susan, email me. And I'll just pass on your recommendations because you may have different things that you like than what I like. So uh, for the rest of you, we will save your, uh, your correspondence for a future edition of... Until next hour, in the words of the great Barry Farber, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Moreno. Uh, by the way, we did mail last hour. If you ever want to send us mail, you can do so uh, by sending it to P.O. Box 1777. Uh, my attention, Frank Morano, New York, New York, 10163. That's P.O. Box 1777, New York, New York, 10163. Uh, by the way, there was at least one um, piece of um, piece of uh, correspondence that I did want to mention that didn't get to that I didn't get to mention yesterday, and this is from this is from Instagram. That's why I didn't see it. Uh, so you could find me on Instagram at Morano Vision. I really much prefer email. If um, if you're able to if you're able to email me, it's much better. Frank at wabcradio.com. But I am on Instagram at Morano Vision, and this gentleman or lady, I don't know which it was, sent me this message all about um, all about my use of certain words in that discussion about race. Now, previously, when I was referred to as anti-Semitic. I got my friend Brian Silverstein to put out a statement uh, vouching that I am not at all anti-Semitic, that I am very pro-Semitic. And we've played that many times, and he stands by those words. When one person on Facebook once accused me of being anti-Hispanic, we did a whole half hour, not on this show but at a previous radio station, all about Hispanic people calling in and mentioning that they did not think I was anti-Semitic. Um, Hispanic. Now, when I went to Brian Silverstein, I could have gone to a rabbi or one of the leading Jewish pillars of our community, but instead, I went to my closest Jewish friend, who was Brian Silverstein, and he put out a statement. Now, yesterday, as I was under attack by Gigi, um, a lot of people were very disturbed that there were some people that were referring to me as a racist. Some of them, by the way, commenting uh, on Facebook. And you could see some of these comments at, uh, at Facebook.com slash Morano fan. And so a gentleman that rushed to put out a statement in support of me was none other than my friend Keith Spaulding, who happens to be black. And just moments ago, we received the following statement that he has asked that we play on the radio. 
This is Keith Spaulding. I'm a longtime friend of Frank Morano. Unlike Rachel Dolezal and others, I also happen to be a lifelong black man. As such, I can state unequivocally that not only is Frank a good friend to me, but he's a good friend to the black community as a whole. As someone who worked with Frank for many years, I can tell you that Frank would go out of his way to pick me up every morning in a black neighborhood, no less. And in the course of our daily carpool, we spoke about a wide variety of issues, including politics, sports, entertainment, our families, race, relations, and other issues you can think of. In the course of our many conversations, never did I think for a moment that Frank had anything but love in his heart for the black community. As someone that worked on a daily basis with some of the best-known civil rights leaders in the country, I can tell you that Frank ranks near the top of the list for media figures who have worked to bring people of all races together. I remain not only a close friend of Frank's and his family and have been honored to be a guest at his home repeatedly. But I'm a big fan of his show, and I think one of the great travesties in our society is that by throwing out terms like racist, it could have a chilling effect on discussions, issues of race, and issues of conscience in general. No one should have any qualms about discussing things like the Sesame Place incident, nor any hot-button issue. What we need in society is more discussion of controversial issues, no less. I can state without reservation that Frank, like no other prominent national figure, Frank Morano has a great relationship with the blacks. There you have it. Need I say anything more? Certified as non-racist by Keith Spaulding. Now, so we have the Jewish community covered, we have the black community covered, we have the Hispanic community covered. I have to, in case I get accused of Asian racism, I am going to have to make an Asian friend so that I can have one of them put out a stay. Actually, I think I do have a couple of Asian friends. Yeah, I think I do. All right. So we're, we're good on that, that score. All right. Hey, um, if you watch any science fiction at all, whether it's well-known science fiction like Star Trek and The Terminator, whether it's uh, sort of lighthearted science fiction like um, The Orville or even The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, or even if it's science fiction that was a little more um, darker in tone like Blazing, uh, like uh, Blade Runner or Ex Machina, you know how this world is going to end for all of us, right? This world is going to end for us when artificial intelligence that we create chooses to go to war with us. That's how it ends. We know this, right? Well, all this effort that we're spending on creating and, and making artificial intelligence more intelligent, it's all going to come down to us. And th- that's what will be our undoing. The bigger, better Alexa that can do absolutely everything. One day it's going to turn on us going to happen you remember what happened in the film terminator right sarah connor played brilliantly in several of the films by linda hamilton explains how the world ended i need to know how skynet gets built who's responsible the main most directly responsible is miles bennett dyson who is that it's the director of special projects at cyberdyne systems corporation 
Why him? In a few months, he creates a revolutionary type of microprocessor. Go on. Then what? In three years, Cyberden will become the largest supplier of military computer systems. All stealth bombers are upgraded with Cyberden computers, becoming fully unmanned. Afterwards, they fly with a perfect operational record. The Skynet funding bill is passed. The system goes online on August 4, 1997. Human decisions are removed from strategic defense. Skynet begins to learn at a geometric rate. It becomes self-aware at 2.14 a.m. Eastern Time, August 29th. In a panic, they try to pull the plug. Skynet fights back. Yes. It launches its missiles against the targets in Russia. Why attack Russia? Aren't they afraid now? Because Skynet knows that the Russian counterattack will eliminate its enemies over here. Jesus. That's what happened in the Terminator. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we are one step closer to artificial intelligence destroying us. Speaking of Russia, a chess robot accidentally, air quotes all over accidentally, a chess robot accidentally broke the finger of its seven-year-old opponent during an exhibition in Moscow. The child apparently moved his piece too soon, and the robot grabbed his finger and squeezed it, causing a fracture before help could arrive. The robot broke the child's finger. The video shows the robot grabbing the boy's finger and holding it for several seconds. A group of people come to free him. It's not clear what went, what went wrong, but apparently the child had made a move, and after that, we need to give him time for the robot's answer. But the boy hurried, and the robot grabbed him. He implied that the robot suppliers may need work on the safety aspect, saying they're going to have to think again. My friends, I am telling you, this is a seminal moment in the history of human civilization. The first time a robot that's designed to play a recreational game turns on his human adversary. What's next? Where are we going from here? Are we going to see Watson, that Jeopardy-playing robot, turn on Ken Jennings or Mayan Bialik? You wait. You wait. It may sound far-fetched now. But if there's one thing that we know from science fiction, and look, science fiction has become science reality repeatedly, we create these robots or artificial intelligence life forms to help us. And inevitably... They screw us. Let's stop. Let's get off this train. I mean, you remember the the cyclons and the Cylons in Battlestar Galactica? Those were created to to help us. So here, you think you're having an Alexa that's doing a good thing, that's playing WABC or whatever your favorite radio station is. It's telling you baseball scores, telling you the weather. It would never dream of answering you any way except. And then one day it destroys all of human civilization, just like in the pilot episode of Battlestar Galactica. So one day your robot buddy, your smart speaker, your Google chat bot is saying, and the next day they are lasering you. I don't want to give too much away if you haven't seen the series The Orville. 
But there's this great episode this season, and it's on Hulu now, where the the this artificial intelligence, the Kalon, were just like these Cylons. And they were created to help the people of this planet, to be, to be servants. Basically, these rob, you know, uh, roboticized butlers. And then all of a sudden, the Kalon robots... They get a little sick of being told what to do and being the only ones in the house that are pitching in and being abused by the people that live there. So they kill all the people on their planet. Kill them all. This is where we're going, folks. This robot attacking this seven-year-old boy is the first shot of World War IV, of the humans versus the robots. So now that I've said this, you can bet that I'm going to be target number one among all these robots. And I don't know if they're going to look like the Cylons or like your Alexa device or like the Arnold Schwarzenegger character in Terminator or um, like the Kalon in um, or on the Orville or even like uh, the Hal. That, you know, in, remember in 2001, the Space Odyssey? He certainly was not very nice. Hey. I can see you're really upset about this. I honestly think you ought to sit down calmly, take a stress pill and think things over. I know I've made some very poor decisions recently, but I can give you my complete assurance that my work will be back to normal. I've still got the greatest enthusiasm and confidence in the mission. And I want to help you. Or if they're going to look like something else. But I am pretty worried about this. I'm, I'm not joking here. I'm doing a little bit of shtick, but only a little bit, which is a, a pretty big improvement for me. I really do think that we should be very alarmed at this chess-playing robot attacking a seven-year-old boy. Now, understand, this is a robot that's designed to play chess, and it broke a seven-year-old boy's finger. I don't know if you have Gmail, but I use Gmail, and Gmail has this feature on email where they predict what you're about to write. Have you seen this? And all you have to do is click enter. Oh, yeah, I'll take it. Now, most of the time, it's pretty innocuous. But sometimes it's pretty in-depth. And what I've noticed of late is the Gmail predictor of what I'm going to write is actually a better writer than I am. When I'm writing these emails to people, the Gmail predictor is coming up with better words than I am. Now, this chess-playing robot, is designed for purely recreational behavior, and that's to play chess. There are other much more dangerous robots. There are robots, many, that are designed to manufacture things. There are robots that are designed to fly through the sky and shoot people and kill them. We do a lot of killing by robot these days. These flying drones. 
that are robots designed to kill terrorists or whoever we don't like. This is the action of a chess-playing robot. Can you imagine if something goes wrong with a drone, a killer drone, what's going to happen? I don't know if you're as worried as I am, but I'm pretty worried. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. 1-800-848-9222. And look, um, the more and more we tend to rely on things like virtual reality and plugging in all the time in the metaverse, which is the next big thing, and cryptocurrency, more and more people have speculated that we're living in some version of the Matrix. You know what the Matrix has in common with with the Terminator and uh, Hal from 2001 and the Cylons? The Matrix is a system. It's that they were all invented by people. They were all invented by people, and these artificially intelligent villains all turned on the people. And in the case of the Cylons, they killed them. In the case of Hal, he tried to kill them. In the case of the Skynet Cyberdyne uh, system, he tried to, they tried to kill the humans. And in the case of the Matrix, they enslaved the whole human race. The Matrix is a system, Neil. That system is our enemy. When you're inside, you look around, what do you see? Businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters. The very minds of the people we are trying to save. But until we do, these people are still a part of that system, and that makes them our enemy. You have to understand, most of these people are not ready to be unplugged. And many of them are so inert, so hopelessly dependent on the system, that they will fight to protect it. I have a pretty good idea of what the problem is. I do not have any idea of what the solution is at this point. I kind of feel like the Pandora's box is open. The genie is out of the bottle. I don't know that we can put the cap back on the bottle here. I don't know what the solution is, but I'm pretty worried. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. Yeah, hi. Good morning. 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 Um, about the, uh, the robots taking over and all that, there's a perfect movie you need to watch. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called colossus the forbidden product i have seen it and you know i almost pulled some audio from that but i was i was concerned that not enough people would be familiar with the film but you're exactly right uh that is that is a perfect uh film as a cautionary tale here also what about all these cars that are self-driving and all that when that when it takes out remember how forbidden also got the computers in uh russia involved they start talking to each other with their own language and all that we have this 5G thing now where all the cars are going to connect to and all that. If something like that should happen and that kind of intelligence gets to the car, I mean, we're putting our hands into cars now to drive us, to do everything. We're, we really could be in trouble. Oh, yeah. No doubt about it. Well, I don't know what. I have to say. All right, Rick. No, Thank you. Tom in the Bronx. Hello. Yeah, hi, yes, Frank. I like to say uh, mm. they they want to end the uh, the horse-drawn carriages in in Central Park. Uh, how about having robotic horses pulling the? 
pulling the wagons. Well, look, that is not that far-fetched, Tom. You know, there was um, there was some talk of replacing them with uh, electric antique cars. And there's an episode of The Twilight Zone where they ban boxing. And all the boxing is done by robots. So I could actually see a scenario in which all the horse-drawn carriages are robotic horse-drawn oh, Frank, carriages. Yes. Frank, let yes. me say one more thing. Yes, please. Yeah. They, if you want to eat the best... Get yourself a bamboo steamer. Okay. Uh, Another bamboo. Have you ever used a bamboo steamer? I don't believe that I have. No, no. If you get one, you put it over a pot of boiling water, and you can cook steaks, chops, mix, have vegetables, steam vegetables, and it keeps all the vitamins in your food. I had one years ago. We used to use one. Well, what happened to yours, Tom? They, well, I don't know. I moved in uh, from uh, the fifth to the sixth floor, so I guess somehow it disappeared. I don't know. Well, Tom, but, uh, maybe I'll buy you one. You want me to buy you one? Uh, no, well, but buy one for yourself. That's all. I, I'll get one of them. All right. Well, thank you, Tom. But, no, I'm not a really cook. I would buy Tom one, happily. Uh, 800-848-9222. JR is in Brooklyn. Hello, JR. Frank is a perfect example of what I wanted to talk about. Yesterday, I listened to this station for hours in a row, and I swore I was listening to something on repeat. It was the same thing over and over again, and at no point did anyone talk about Skynet. At no point did anyone talk about any type of content, new content. It was just the same old government good, this government bad, Frank. You deserve an accommodation for yourself. I don't think it's right if you give yourself one, but I'm going to go ahead on the listener's behalf and give one to you strictly for your content. This is a perfect example of it. Well, you're very kind, JR. Just in defense of the rest of the radio station, I appreciate your enthusiasm for this show. But, look, you can't argue with success, right? And whatever the radio station is doing, including the rest of the lineup, is working. The listenership is up, I think, something like 400 percent over the last year. So um, you can't look. I have my style. The other guys have their style. You can't knock what is working. 800-848-9222. We're going to talk with Zena Hassel uh, in just a couple of minutes. Daniel is in Queens. Hello, Daniel. Hey, good evening. Good morning. How's it going? Great, great, great. I was hearing you talking about um, dystopian plots in speculative fiction, also sometimes known as science fiction. And um, I think a lot of it's great. I feel like The Brave New World could be like a good book club reread these two days, these new days, rather. And um, Doctor Who did The Matrix before The Matrix in the 70s, and I feel like they did it a little better. And um, a lot of the American stuff is cool, but I feel like if you look at the whole spectrum, and I also feel about serial sci-fi or speculative fi like Doctor Who or no matter what, if it's Battlestar Galactica, it's all about the writing. A good story can be really great no matter if it's underlaid with, you know, Batman or your favorite hero. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Uh, I do indeed. Thank you, Daniel. Ina is in Manhattan. Hello, Ina. Okay, Mr. John. Thank you for I'm taking actually my call. Frank. How are you? Uh, good. I yes. am actually Frank, though. Oh, uh, Frank. Um, what I want to say with the robot, I don't like those. Ro- I don't like the robots. But what I want to ask you: 
could they um, predict horses and and lot of numbers? Because uh, they seem that they can't do everything. They tell you the weather. They tell you where to go if you're driving the wrong way and stuff like that. And another thing I want to ask you, I want your email because I want to talk to you, um, ask you, tell you something. But I want your email or your your box number. All right, I'm going to put you on hold, and uh, and Kenneth will give you all of the information that you need. So please hold, Ina. And finally, Carol is in Yonkers. Hello, Carol. Good morning, Frank. How are you? Right. Frank, the first time um, I was exposed to AI was uh, way back in the 60s. I'm 66 now. Um, On the Twilight Zone episode where um, a lady was uh, working with a computer, and the computer, this is toward the end of the show, actually uh, told her that he loved her. I re- no, I remember that. That was a the inventor was a male though, and the computer was female. Yeah. Oh, that's what I. Yeah, that's what I yeah. mean. Right. Yeah, I remember that. But yeah, I thought that was uh, so uh, so great, and I was young at the time, so it was kind of fascinating. But I'm not a big fan um, of AI like that. Alexa, I don't even have a, a Garmin, and my family is always after me because I do get lost. I don't have a great sense of direction, but I feel like using those things. It's going to obliterate our brains in a couple of uh, generations. I don't know whether that's true, but that's just what I feel like. I think we need, especially now at this age, I like to use every bit of my brain as I can. And I think that takes away from it. I I don't disagree with you, Carol. Thank you. We're going to talk with someone that is very bright in just a moment. Zena Hassel. She's an entrepreneur and the founder of a a terrific uh, telecommunications company. And she wrote a a very interesting book, and it's great beyond just for folks that want to work in telecommunications, but really for all women or really any person that's having a difficult time breaking into a field that's dominated by one type of people, be it men, be it certain ethnic group, whatever the case may be, a certain age group. It's called My Armadillo Skin, How I Made It as a Woman in the Field of Telecommunications. We're going to talk with Gina Hassel straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Mick Jagger, it is his birthday today. He's got to be celebrating his, I don't know, got to be at least 110 today, right? Um, He actually is 79. Boy, if there is somebody that looks older than 79, it is 
certainly Mick Jagger. Uh, somebody that knows a thing or two about uh, about rock and roll and just about anything else is uh, somebody that I've been lucky enough to get to know a little bit over the last few years. Zena Hassel. She is the founder and CEO of ZLH Enterprises and the author of the book, My Armadillo Skin, How I Made It as a Woman in the Field of Telecommunications. Zena, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for getting up early. Oh, you're more than welcome. This is the other side of midnight that I haven't seen in a while. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll try not to uh, be too boring that we put you back to sleep. Uh, Zena, before we talk about the book, what exactly is ZLH Enterprises? What kind of work do you guys do over there? We we are a business-to-business technology consulting company. So we work with businesses and we evaluate their internet, VoIP, voice, Fix Me, I'm Broken, Security Awareness Training, um, and we do all of that. We uh, broker, so to speak, or or look for the proper carriers to connect with the customers, and then we stay around. We help provision. We project manage all the services. We do the uh, customer service, and then if there are billing issues, we get involved. If there are service issues, we get involved, and and we typically can do that. Um, with, without a uh, cost to the customer. Oh, really? Well, so if I've got a business, I've got a, an insurance company, let's say, I say, you know, Zena, I think I might be paying a little too much when it comes to uh, my phone or Internet or whatever the case may be. I call you and you do sort of a, an audit of everything that my company is spending money on, and then you implement a plan as to how to fix it, and then because you're you're saving the company some money we don't have to usually pay you anything additional is that in a nutshell well sort of so there there are several kinds of um companies like mine that are out there some Mm -hmm. of them will take a piece of the savings going forward we don't do that we look and see whether or not there has been any uh misbilling in the past and then we recover that we'll take a fee only on that previous recovery Hmm. And and the feeling on that is you paid money that you didn't know that you shouldn't have paid. So whatever you get back is found money for you. Our fee is is a percentage of what we get you back. Any plan that we are able to put you on to save money going forward is your savings. I we see. Are, we, and we are compensated by the carriers. Gotcha. Okay, great. And if, by the way, if people are interested in learning more about the business or think that uh, you might be a good fit for their business, they could certainly check out your website, ZLHENT.com. That's Z-L-H-E-N-T dot com. So I really enjoyed this book, uh, My Armadillo Skin. I think it's uh, I think it's fun, but also chock full of information. Uh, let's start with the uh, the title. Why do you call the book My Armadillo Skin? Because if I didn't have a really thick skin growing up in this business, I I don't think I would have survived it. All of the jabs that I took for the multiple years of of learning, um, I was constantly bombarded. There was one company that I was with, and I was always being told, what are you doing here? You should be home barefoot and pregnant. Um, I was laid off while I was on maternity leave by the personnel director who reported to me who said, well, gee, I didn't know that you were on maternity leave. I'm sorry. What did, what do you think you hear in the background? <laughs> so there, there, there was a lot of, um, you know, water cooler, bathroom kind of joke 
going on and 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 if you couldn't if you couldn't handle it you had to get out and, and so you, you i sort of grew a layer of skin every time something happened and just said i'm not going to let it affect me let me just get on with things how long have you been in the telecommunications business um since oh see now you're going to make me give my <laughs> age away well ballpark <laughs> give us a ballpark late late 70s okay late 70s. all right Let's so put it this way alexander Bell and i shared phone numbers <laughs> So you certainly, I'm sure, have seen your fair share of changes, both when it comes to technology and the culture in the telecommunications business. Why is, or or at least why was, the telecommunications industry such a boys' club? Why was it so male-dominated? Clearly, there are a lot of women, I'm sure, like you, who could make very valuable contributions, not just as as an owner of a company like you, but I would think in all sorts of other fields. Why did it become such a male-dominated industry? Well, I mean, for for one thing, it's one it's it's a uh, what people call a, a STEM kind of an industry, um, technology, and women historically do not enter that kind of a field. Mm. But also, if you if you're looking at the telephone industry, um, a lot of that uh, began with the telephone company cable installation people or engineer people, and they tended to be male. Or, or you had the engineers coming out of school; they tended to be male. So it 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 was, and still is, actually a very male-dominated field. Probably, let, I mean, I haven't seen the recent statistics, and I should have done that preparing to come on the show. So shame on me. No, no, that's okay. Um, you know, we're we're probably at about fifteen percent women, and then women business owners significantly less than that. So there, there's still, I guess, a stigma in women going into technology, and that has to stop. It, it's not like you're going to be considered a geek. If anything, um, you know, it, it, people can it, – it's a, it's a very nice field to go into. I'm really happy that one of my daughters is in the business with me now. Yeah, I know your daughter, Jody. She's uh, she's a great person and uh, really, really a go-getter when it comes to this. And uh, she's a, a very impressive uh, woman. So it sounds like she had a pretty good mentor in uh, in you and blazing a trail for not only her but a lot of other women that uh, that are coming after that are coming after you. If people are just tuning in. We're talking with my uh, with the author of the book, My Armadillo Skin, uh, Zena Hassel. It's uh, Z I N A, not X like the Warrior Princer, uh, Princess. Uh, it's available on Amazon. H A S S E L. You can search Zena Hassel or My Armadillo Skin, and, and it comes uh, it comes right up. So one of the things that you do in the book is sort of provide a roadmap two other women that want to do well and want to advance in the telecommunications industry without giving away all your secrets in this discussion. What are a couple of tips that you could give women who want to rise through the ranks of the telecommunications business? Well, it, it, it's not, it's not just telecommunications. It's not just women. Um, it, it, it really is something that anybody can use, but in terms of a roadmap, some of the things people um, tend to get afraid to say things, at meetings, um, and that doesn't mean just to run your mouth off to hear yourself speak. But if if you have something to say, don't be bashful about it. If you go to a meeting, don't sit in the back because you know you're 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 you, you don't feel comfortable being there. You you sort of have to rise to the occasion and and put yourself in the mix. 
And, and if you have something good to say, then go ahead and do it. On the other hand, if you're not happy where you are, I'm a firm believer that if you're not happy at what you're doing, you're not going to be good at what you're doing. So move. Mm. Just leave if that's the case because it's not good for you, for you and it's not good for your employer. And I did do that when I made the transition from healthcare administration into technology because I, I did not go to school to be a technology person. I went to school to be a, a hospital administrator, but that didn't work out for various and sundry reasons. And I got up and I left. And it was a very big step. I took a significant cut in pay. And you have to be able to do that. You have to be in a position to do that. Uh, one of the things that I think everybody that's been in a managerial position over the years can empathize with is the difficult time that folks may have in terms of letting someone go. There's an employee that's just not cutting it for whatever reason. And I, I know from uh, countless experiences that I've had in talking with people that firing someone can be one of the most stressful things that they have to do. In your experience, if an employee is just not working out, how do you handle a firing in a way that is to the point uh, but that it doesn't necessarily take an emotional or professional toll either on you or the person you're firing. Well, interestingly, at one of the uh, one of the companies that I was with, they sent me to become a certified management trainer, and in that training class, we actually went through how do you determine that it's time to let somebody go, and and you really want to make sure that you want to let the person go because there is a cost associated with that, not just severance pay or whatever you're talking about, but there's a cost for having an open position. And and just in terms of the humanity of it all, you want to make sure that if you are letting somebody go, like I had to do for Jody once, um, you, you, you wanted to do it in such a way that you don't deflate their ego. Wait, you had to fire your own daughter? <laughs> yes. You're kidding. I, 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 I am. You know, people may think that, oh, she's in the business and she's got it easy. I am so hard on her. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes I have to turn around and apologize because I, I just want to make sure that she understands that she's got to earn her way. She came to work for me once many, many years ago, and it just wasn't working out. So we sat down. And at the end of the discussion, I, I guess she thought that she quit. I knew that I had told her it was time to go. But we came to this mutual understanding. We didn't hate each other. She went back to the hospitality industry until it was time for her to come back again. And, and no hard feelings. You know, that lasted anyhow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's very funny. Now, but when you fire somebody, you, wanna, you, want, you don't want to say, hey, you stink. And, you know, just get out of here and, and, and take your rotten ways and, and go someplace else. You, you want to amplify the skills that the person does have and, and maybe where those skills are best suited. And many companies have outplacement departments where they can actually, um, you know, when you hear about all these major layoffs going on, oftentimes they have these departments that will help the employees find suitable new employment. And um, what, what about recruiting talent? How do you know somebody that applies for a job is a good fit for your company and the culture at a company? Well, and uh, how how can I uh, you know put this without breaking any rules? There, there are so many rules now in in hiring and in interviewing. 
um, questions that you you can't ask, and if if a future uh, employee or an applicant starts talking about something, you have to tell them to stop. You can't even listen to what they're saying. They can't say it. Um, so you, you, you just have to get a feel for. Um, I mean, I I know there's one company that I know of that before you get hired, you have to be interviewed by umpteen people in God knows how many departments. They want to make sure that you are going to be a fit for their company culture. So it, does that always work now? Um, but you, they they want to make sure that your your personality, your skill level is such that it's going to fit in. Uh, I typically look at what are the skills that the person has and will will those skills be uh, transferable into my business. Mm. Uh, we're talking with Gina Hassel. She's the author of the book, uh, My Armadillo Skin, which you could check out. A short book, but it's chop, chock full of uh, useful information, not just for women, but for anybody that uh, is looking for some practical advice on how to advance. And it's also chock full of uh, interesting anecdotes about Gina's life and uh, and career. Zena, what's a common mistake that women who are looking to advance in the workplace make? Are there is there any uh, any pro tips that you could offer that'll help women avoid common mistakes if they dream of maybe owning a company one day or even starting their own company? I, I think maybe maybe one oversight is that people don't get themselves a mentor, and and mm. so you've got mentorship, you've got continuing education. But mentors are invaluable because that's somebody that you can use as a uh, a sounding board, uh, you know, letting them know what uh, situations you may be facing at work. I mentor um, uh, college and graduate students um, that come from a certain university in, in, in Manhattan. And, you know, we talk about all, all sorts of things. Some of it business-related some of it personal related that may roll over into business, and I think that they find it very helpful. Well, it is uh, certainly a, a helpful book, uh, My Armadillo Skin. Zena, it's always a treat to talk with you. I look forward to seeing you in person soon and uh, at, at the very least chatting again on the radio soon. Well, I, I enjoyed this, and let me just leave you with this one. Whenever you call in for customer service someplace and you get stuck in, stuck in that continuous loop, with the uh, with the uh, the voice prompting, as my husband says, that's your industry. You did that. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Zena Hassel, uh, author of the book My Armadillo Skin. And again, if uh, you are interested in her for professional reasons, you can certainly reach out via the website as well. Z l h e n t dot com. That's z l h e n t dot com. We'll take your calls in just a minute. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Any subject is fair game. That's eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Straight ahead. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. And I like the way you straighten my tie And I like the way 
Jerry and the Pacemakers. I like it. If you um, ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this show, all you have to do is join our Facebook group. Just search on Facebook, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. And uh, we would encourage you to just follow our standard, regular Facebook page as well at uh, Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. Now, you know if you've uh, listened to me for any length of time that I am a Star Trek fan. Um, I've seen, you know, I love the original series, love Next Generation. I really like Deep Space Nine. I really like Voyager. I like Enterprise. I don't have the same kind of enthusiasm for that series as I do the other four series that I just alluded to. I like the animated series. I like um, Picard, certainly. Love all the movies. And uh, I have not seen Star Trek Discovery or the new one that everyone's talking about, Strange New Worlds, or the other uh, animated series that everyone who's talking about, Lower Decks. But my brothers, who are both big Star Trek fans, they both swear by Lower Decks. They love it. They say it's terrific. So there was a, uh, a panel at uh, some science fiction convention the other day. And William Shatner, who is, as far as I'm concerned, the greatest actor and one of the greatest personalities of all time, was on the panel. And he had some very interesting comments about Star Trek and space. This is what he said. Uh, We don't have the audio, but this is what was reported by The Hollywood Reporter. Shatner spent plenty of the panel speaking about his career, especially Star Trek. And he's got great stories. I've read the book William Shatner's Star Trek Memories. I've read the book William Shatner's Star Trek Movie Memories. I've read, I, I think, every nonfiction book that he's written, and many of the fictional ones. But, but he gets into a lot of these stories. When asked about newer generations of the show, he revealed what he believes no new shows in the franchise, that he believes no new shows in the franchise can rival his own. So what he said was, I got to know Gene Roddenberry, that's the creator of Star Trek, in three years fairly well. He'd be turning in his grave at some of this stuff. Shatner also spoke on Star Wars, though he apparently is not a fan of the franchise. He said, F Star Wars, but not not Mark Hamill. Mark Hamill played Luke Skywalker. He talked about his trip into space last year, which he took very seriously and also became a frequent topic of discussion during the panel. He said, quote, I went and I vowed that every moment that I spent in space would not be playing around in weightlessness, but looking out the window and trying to get an impression. So it is interesting. Um, First of all, as far as Gene Roddenberry, he might be right about Roddenberry not being fond of what the franchise has become today. But the truth is... That Roddenberry, towards the end of his career with Star Trek, they had they gave him the title of consulting producer, but he didn't like a lot of the direction that Star Trek was going while he was alive. Star Trek VI, for instance, which I consider to be one of the greatest Star Trek films ever made and has a great performance by William Shatner, Gene Roddenberry hated Star Trek VI. He hated uh, a lot about it. There's a biography of William Sh- with uh, Gene Roddenberry that's very good, and um, he was very critical of Star Trek VI. 
Also very critical of a lot of great episodes of The Next Generation around that time, including a great series of episodes with Spock on Next Generation, um, Unification, Parts 1 and 2. Roddenberry, he was very critical of that. And I think didn't like the direction that the film franchise went. And the movies did fine without him, except for the first film. Roddenberry had very little do, very little to do with any of the films. And I think if you look at Star Trek 2, 3, 4, and 6, and I hate to omit Star Trek 5, which was directed by El Capitan himself, William Shatner, but that's not as good as the other ones that I just mentioned. Star Trek's 2, 3, 4, and 6, they were great films, great films. And Roddenberry had nothing to do with them. So he did have a little bitterness towards the end of his life in that uh, realm. But I do wonder if this is an appropriate thing for Shatner to do. Now, I don't question Shatner. That's sort of my, that's my prime directive as a person. Anything William Shatner says is automatically correct in my view. Automatically. I will not question William Shatner under any circumstance. I follow him. I follow him like a, a Cylon on Battlestar Galactica. But um, Shatner is somebody that was able to make a whole career out of Star Trek. And now, I don't know how I feel that the actors that are trying to make a career out of Star Trek these days, he's basically not giving them the same opportunity. I mean, if he didn't, you know, it reminds me of, um, there's a, a wrestler, Lanny Poffo, better known as the genius when he was in the WWE. And he was very critical of Bruno San Martino because San Martino did what Shatner's doing. And San Martino made a great career in pro wrestling and, and then basically was as critical as one can be of pro wrestling. And then Lanny Poffo said at the time, he said, look, you know, if you don't want to be involved in whatever everyone's doing, don't. But don't sit here and be critical of what we're trying to do. And I felt that way with people in talk radio from time to time. You know, there's a lot of people that don't work in talk radio anymore for whatever reason. They either got fired or they chose to leave or they're onto something else. And it includes hosts, it includes producers, it includes call screeners, it includes all sorts of people. And It really drives me crazy whenever I see these people on social media lambasting an entire industry that they had no problem making a career out of. Well, excuse me. So we want to make a career out of this, too. So you don't have to you don't have to urinate all over everything that we're doing just because things didn't work out well for you. So that's my two cents. I'm not going to question Shatner, but part of me wonders the about the appropriateness of Shatner making these comments. Now, one of the things I love about Shatner is he doesn't care about the appropriateness. He'll just say whatever he wants, that whatever's on his mind at any given time, and that's what's so great about him. But I don't know. Um, hey, the um, next hour. Speaking of wrestling, we'll talk a little bit about Vince McMahon and Paul Servino, who we lost. You know, it is an interesting thing. Yesterday, the twenty fifth, my son turned eight months old. Can't believe he's eight months old. Feel like he was born yesterday. I was just on the air and had gotten word that uh, that he was born or was that my wife's water has broken. But he's been doing an interesting thing recently, my son Carmine. Now he doesn't speak yet, but he does make sounds, and he does have a personality. Right? He makes faces, laughs. 
But he's been doing something over the course of the last three or four weeks, which I find so interesting. He's been faking a cough. Like he'll go, <clears throat> um, not like he's clearing his throat or that he's got something stuck in there. He fakes a cough for attention. Now, how did he learn how to fake a cough? I wasn't coughing around him. My wife wasn't, but he knows how to fake a cough for a reaction. Kids are born performer. Your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Hey, uh, I'll tell you, it is not a good time to be a an actor who plays mobsters. Am I right? We talked about the passing of James Caan. We talked about the passing of Tony Sirico. And yesterday, we got the news that um, Paul Servino had passed away. Paul Servino was a wonderful actor and I got to meet him several times and and more than being a wonderful actor, he was uh, a really great person. I met him and his wife, um, Dee Dee, several times. I know his wife, Dee Dee. In fact, we emailed yesterday. I'm hoping she'll come on. Um, I asked, I told her she's welcome to come on whenever she wants to share some nice stories about uh, her husband. But uh, they met actually on Neil Cavuto's show. Can you believe that? On the Fox Business Network? They were both guests on Neil Cavuto's show, and they met there. They got married um, relatively recently, about, uh, I want to say about 10 years ago. And I met him when he was promoting this cookbook that the two of them had written on a radio show that I was promoting, the uh, I was producing, the Joe Piscopo show. And he, Paul uh, Servino and Joe Piscopo were friendly, so he gave us a lot of extra time. I couldn't find any photos that I took with him, but he was kind enough to sign my book, my cookbook, which my wife and I do use, and it's a great book. And he was a really interesting guy. He was born and raised in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. His mother was a a homemaker and a piano teacher, and his father was an immigrant, Italian immigrant who worked in a robe factory as a foreman. He went to Lafayette High School, and then was he began his career, believe it or not, as a copywriter in an advertising agency, took voice lessons for 18 years and one went into theater, wanted to go into theater, made his Broadway debut in 1964. And then six years later, he appeared in his first film, which was a Carl Reiner film. And uh, he did so many great films over the years. And even the films that he did, which weren't so great, he's still good in them. Uh, The film The Family Man with uh, Nicolas Cage, which is sort of a modern-day take on um, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, The Rocketeer, he's great in that. Uh, Dick Tracy, 
not exactly a great film, but he's good in it as sort of a, a, a cartoonish gangster. I am a gambling fanatic, so it will be no surprise to you that two of his films that he appeared in, which I enjoyed most, were The Cooler, which if you go into my office, that's the William H. Macy film, Alec Baldwin's, and it's a great cast. If you go into my office at home, I have the movie poster to The Cooler on on the wall because I'm so fond of that film. And a couple that I married gave that to me as a gift, which was very thoughtful. And I, I look at it every day. It's a great film. The remake of or the modern spin of Romeo and Juliet, Bullworth, which I was just talking about the other day, Bullworth, he's terrific in Bullworth as a a very pivotal role. I don't want to give anything away if you haven't seen it. Uh, The Firm. I mean, so many great pictures. Oh, so I was going to say the other film that I like that he did that's a gambling movie, The Gambler, the original The Gambler, a fine film. Um, As far as... Oh, and the other political movie which he did, Nixon. He's very good in Nixon. The uh, I, I think Paul Servino is probably best known as playing, uh, being in gangster films, right? There's a wonderful film that I think is really underrated, which people don't know about. It's called Kill the Irishman. It's set in Ohio during the 1970s. It's a drama and it's all about a tough Irish thug who worked for gangsters in Cleveland. Kill the Irishman. Paul Servino is great in it. But if you had to pick one role that really defines Paul Servino's career, it has got to be. I don't know what. I don't know anything about the restaurant business. Nothing. All I know is to sit down and order the meal. I don't know how to make a restaurant. No, uh, not for you. It's just a place to hang. You know, I mean, the chef is great. You got to. The- Shows are good. There's a lot of who is coming in here all the time. I like to help you out. Look, what, what do you want from me? What am I going to do? Tommy's a bad kid. He's a bad seat. What am I supposed to do? Shoot him? That uh, wouldn't be a bad idea. No, I'm sorry I said that. I didn't mean to say that. I, I just mean that he's scaring me. You know, I, I just, uh, I need help. All right? Help me, please. You know. You know anything about this restaurant business? He knows everything about it. I mean, he's in a joint 24 hours a day. I mean, another another few, few minutes, it could be a stool. That's how often he's in there. You understand? You want me to be your partner? Yeah. That's what you're trying to tell me. You want me to be your partner? Yeah, what the f*** do you think I'm talking about, Paulie? Please, come on. It's not even fair. No? You don't understand. The joint is over. Oh, right you run the joint. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll try to help you, all right? God bless you, Paulie. Okay. I appreciate it. God bless you. Always been fair with me. All right. So, uh, passed away at the age of 83, had not been in the best of health. That, obviously, is from the film Goodfellas. The other film that I'd be remiss, and it's another Warren Beatty film, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, is Reds. He's great in the film Reds. And he was really so much more than an actor. Um, a very good singer. And a, a guy that was really passionate about cooking. And that's what his cookbook with his wife is about. The recipes were all his, based on his mother's recipes. And then the cocktails and the party, the idea for throwing the party, was his wife, Dee Dee. So in an April 2014 interview, and I think this sums him up better than anybody, he said this, quote, Most people think I'm either a gangster or a cop or something. But the reality is I'm a sculptor, which he was, a very, very accomplished sculptor. Uh, I'm a sculptor, a painter, a best-selling author, 
many, many things. A poet, an opera singer, but none of them is a gangster. But, you know, obviously I sort of have a knack for playing these things. It's almost my later goal in life to disabuse people of the notion that I'm a slow-moving, heavy-lidded thug. And most people's impression of me is that because of the success of Goodfellas and a few other things. But they forget I was also Dr. Kissinger in Nixon, the deaf lawyer in Dummy. I never saw Dummy. And they forget a lot of things that I've done. It would be nice to have my legacy be more than that of just a tough guy. You know, it's so funny. This happens so often. Shatner, um, in his obituary, which I hope is not written for many, many years, the first line in his obituary is going to say Captain Kirk. But Shatner has done so much more than Captain Kirk. Paul Servino really has done so much more than Goodfellas and other gangster pictures. But sure enough, if you look at all the Paul Servino obituaries today, at or near the first line, it makes reference to Goodfellas. That's the thing with becoming, with having a role, or not even, it goes beyond acting. Because it it happens with other fields as well. But it's, um, when you go beyond that role, sometimes the more successful you are in that role, the difficult, more difficult it can be to outrun or to be known for other, other things. So I always felt bad for Paul Servino because he should have been known for a lot more than just playing Paulie in Goodfellas. But, um, you know, with a movie of that magnitude, I guess that's what happens. You want to comment, you're welcome to do so. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Speaking of Star Trek, you know who else passed away? And I think uh, Barb posted this in the Facebook group. David Warner, the actor David Warner, passed away at the age of 80. Uh, He was terrific. A British actor... He was in Star Trek V as one of the Terran ambassadors on Nimbus Three, And then he came back for the next film, Star Trek VI, where he played Chancellor Gorkin. But he was in the film uh, Time After Time, where he plays Jack the Ripper pretty well in that film. So sorry to see him go uh, as well. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Larry's in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Hi, Frank. I want to comment on a couple of things, uh, not about Star Trek. Uh, you mentioned your son. Uh, By the way, I didn't mention. Court. I didn't mention, um, and you actually remind me. Paul Servino was actually on Star Trek as well. He played Worf's adopted human father on Star Trek: The Next Generation. I wouldn't have even remembered that unless Larry had brought up uh, Star Trek. So it just goes to show you there were so many different aspects. To um to Paul Servino as an actor and an artist. Go ahead, Larry. Sorry. And I never watched one episode of Star Trek in my life. <laughs> okay. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm Paul glad... Servino was known for many other things as well. Yeah, I wanted to comment on a couple of things. First of all, you said your son was fake coughing. Okay. Yes, fake coughing. Yeah. I don't. I don't believe you're right because I, uh, yeah. because I'll tell you what. When I was when I was a toddler or a baby, I don't remember how young I was. I used to cough whenever I heard the word coffee. So it was like a direct stimulation. <laughs> I don't think he's old enough 
uh, to really – that's like deviant that, – not deviant, but deviousness. I don't think your son is old enough to understand deviousness, which would be to try to captivate attention to himself. Uh, Larry, I'm telling you – and I'm going to try and take some video tomorrow when he does this. I'm telling you, this child is fake coughing for attention. <laughs> So you could tell when he's really coughing, if he drinks baby formula too quickly. You know, it sounds like a cough. It sounds, <clears throat> you know, it sounds like a cough. But when he's faking his cough, and I don't know where he learned this. My wife and I were talking yesterday. He might have learned this from his babysitter, Lorraine, uh, because he fakes it with her, too. But he goes, eh, 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 eh. Like, he's trying to make a cough sound, but he can't do it. and And it's... It's very funny, actually, and um, he knows he's faking it. He is absolutely faking it. I'm going to work on capturing some video of this tomorrow, and uh, I'll post it on social media or on uh, or on. Uh, we'll get the audio. Maybe we'll play it on the radio too. He is 100% faking this cough. 100% certain of it. Mike is in the Poconos. Hello, Mike. Top of the morning, Frank. Always a good show, man. Thank Always you. Likewise. Show. Yeah, you know. I was telling um, your producer uh, on the phone, I, I was an extra in a couple movies. And um, uh, Born on the Fourth of July, uh, Mickey Blue Eyes with James Caan. I was in a wedding scene. And I, I met uh, Paul Savino uh, 20 years ago with Ray Liotta, too. And, um, you know, it, it's really uh, – I'm reading the post today. And what, a, what a, a gentleman he was, you know, in every phase of his life, like you said, you know. And um, – uh, I'll tell you what, uh, the Mickey Blue Eyes, uh, I was talking to Burt Young and the producer, uh, I can't think of a name, a British actress, she was a producer. Um, and I'll tell you what, uh, yeah, so many have Tony Sirico. I, I met him years ago also. You know, they say people, you know, it's in threes, it comes in threes, people die. But uh, Paul Savino was a class act, you know, and raise a glass. And I'll tell you, talking about gambling, I was I was a gambler years ago in Atlantic City. Uh, a buddy of mine just retired 41 years at Caesars. He started off as a dealer and retired as a pit boss. And one of the greatest movies on gambling, I think, is Rounders, you know? Oh, I love uh, that picture. Uh, great. John Malkovich is in that. And uh, oh, yeah. obviously Matt Damon and Ed Norton. And, you know, the fellow that, that made that, the fellow that produced and directed it, is the right. showrunner on Billions, which has a lot of the same uh, a lot of the same themes and has a, a similar appeal. Uh, that's a great picture uh, with Martin Landau, not with Paul Servino though. But uh, that's a good good yeah. good one. A uh, good one. Yeah, and I'll tell you, Rounders, the greatest line. You know, I, I play cards once in a while, years ago, small game and this and that, and I, I do imitations. You know, uh, don't splash the pot. <laughs> in my place, I will splash the pot whenever the f I want. John Malkovich. Uh, that is uh, that is very 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 good, Mike. Thank you. I like that. Oh, by the way, I misspoke. Apparently, I said um, that uh, Paul Servino played Worf's adopted father. I meant to say uh, adopted brother, not father. And my thanks to Al Gattulo for correcting that. Now, um, one of the other endings to a career. By the way, Paul Servino um, gave an interview back in 1990. Talking about the craft of acting, and this is what he said. Well, I wasn't castable. I wasn't a good type. I mean, I was too young to play, uh, uh, too young looking to play the, the lead. 
the romantic lead. And yet I was built for that, kind of. I'm six foot three, and I was slender, and I had, you know, worked out all the time and everything. But I was too young looking. Mm. And then uh, when I gained 50 pounds, I became what they call a character man. And the character man plays the uncle and the plumber and the best friend and all of that. So I made my career that way. But my career has, in an interesting way, gone by way of what they call character lead, a fellow who can kiss the girl. Uh, well, so uh, rest in peace, Paul Servino. Condolences to his uh, wife, Dee Dee, who I imagine will be on the show soon, and uh, uh, certainly to uh, his whole family, especially his daughter, Academy Award-winning actress Mira Servino, who won an Oscar for uh, a Woody Allen picture, Mighty Aphrodite, which uh, I saw a recent Woody Allen picture yesterday. Uh, I will review it at some point this week. I'll give you my take on it. Now, another career which has come to an end appears to be that of WWE CEO Vince McMahon. If you are not familiar with Vince McMahon, all you need to know about him is that over the last 45 years, there is no single individual that has had more of an impact on the world of pro wrestling than Vince McMahon. Uh, I am telling you that is not an exaggeration. And Vincent J., McMahon, not Vincent, uh, Vincent K. McMahon, right? Oh, yeah. Vincent J. McMahon was his father. Vincent K. McMahon is, you know, the current Vince McMahon who uh, is stepping down now as the chief executive of World Wrestling Entertainment. I don't know if you've been following this story, but there's all sorts of federal investigations into this hush money scandal that has enveloped the WWE. Evidently, now this is a publicly traded company, so they have to take stuff like this very seriously. The Securities and Exchange Commission and federal prosecutors have launched inquiries into payments made by McMahon to settle allegations of sexual conduct. So the WWE said last week, that it has received regulatory, investigative, and enforcement inquiries, subpoenas, or demands in connection with millions of dollars in these hush money packs. And the only thing I... Look, uh, Vince McMahon is a very complicated guy. And a lot of the people that have worked with Vince over the years, and I'm not just talking about wrestlers or announcers, I'm talking about photographers um, and people that are low-level In the wrestling business, a lot of them would describe Vince McMahon using words that I can't repeat on the radio, literally. And I don't think you could say Vince McMahon was always a good guy. I will say this of Vince McMahon. Vince McMahon was and is a real visionary. He is an incredibly hard worker. He is someone whose vision of what the pro wrestling world could be has now come to fruition. He is someone who, in his early promotion of uh, things like uh, Antonio Inoki um, doing a wrestling versus boxing match uh, against Muhammad Ali in different venues around the world, were kind of flops. His early promotional work was not successful. But he impressed so many people with how he was able to handle these flops that he kept getting opportunity after opportunity to do really great things. And he did. And you have to give him credit for building the world of pro wrestling into what it is today. And um, the WWE 
has found that there's been $14.6 million in unrecorded expenses made by Vince McMahon. Apparently, the way it sounds is that he would get involved in a relationship with a woman, several different women, not one woman, and then uh, maybe sexually harass some women now and again, and then would pay them off using company money. So he would have an affair with a co-worker and then pay millions to cover this up, which is not the kind of things that a good guy does. But it goes hand in hand with what we've heard about Vince McMahon for a long time. Now, that being said, this is such a shame. It's not a shame because a sexual harasser, philandering uh, person that pays hush money uh, and cheats on his wife like crazy is not in his job anymore. That's not the shame of it. The shame of it is a guy that is this talented, this brilliant, and gave so much to the fans of pro wrestling and entertainment in general, he should not be going out in disgrace like this. In some ways, it reminds me of the Donald Sterling situation. And um, not quite as severe, but in some ways it reminds me of the Bill Cosby situation. Um, This is a real shame. Now, Vince McMahon, before he was the owner of a wrestling company, he was a wrestling commentator. His father, who he didn't know until he was about 12 years old, he never knew his biological father until he was about 12. His father gave him an opportunity to work his way up through the company. And even when he took over the company, He still was a commentator, and he continued. See, the fans up until, like, the mid-'90s, they didn't know that Vince McMahon really owned the company. They thought he was just an announcer, which he had been in the late-'70s, early-'80s. And he was quite an announcer. Michaels will stay in it too long. He won't give up. Michaels, he got it! John Michaels got it! Not over. This capacity crowd buzzing. They've never seen anything quite like this. Michael said you got it. He got all of it. Michael's got all of it. Five, two, yes. John Michael's being awarded the title right in front of Bradley Hitman Hart. He was someone who had an incredible enthusiasm, an incredible intellect, an incredibly quick wit, and um, was great with a wide variety of different partners. He uh, had some great on-air moments with Mr. Perfect and Macho Man Randy Savage and uh, Jerry the King Lawler and um, Lord Alfred Hayes and Gorilla Monsoon. But for my money, Vince McMahon rarely had a better partner than Jesse Ventura. And uh, the way that Ventura and McMahon would play off one another when doing commentary was was absolutely brilliant. And so much so that about 10 years ago, long after Jesse Ventura had been governor, more than that, about 13 years ago, long after Jesse Ventura had been governor and long after Vince McMahon had uh, become a character in the world of the WWE, they brought Jesse Ventura back for a special wrestling event at Eight Man Battle Royal. And uh, they kind of rekindled this relationship, which was... Always a little uh, tense, which we'll talk about, between uh, Vince McMahon and Jesse Ventura, and they had them do commentary for this eight-man battle royal. You know, not too many wrestlers are that smart. You were, Jesse, right? Absolutely. I became a governor. What do you think? You're a dummy? (laughs) I became a billionaire. 
You know, you keep bragging about that. I you gotta keep tell, bragging about being a governor. I got to tell you something, McMahon. You know, money don't buy everything like no, you think. Nobody buys good grammar on occasion. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> now, the reason that whole exchange is so funny is because it's so real. Jesse was smart enough to become a governor, and Vince McMahon was smart enough to become a billionaire. Remember, he did that battle of the billionaires at WrestleMania against Donald Trump, where the loser turned out to be McMahon, got his head shaved, and Trump is still very proud uh, of telling people that that's the fastest-selling WrestleMania in history. I don't know if that's accurate, but it is true that Trump says that. Um, Now, in the mid to late 90s, they ushered in this new attitude era. Uh, at the WWE. It was still called the WWF back then. And Vince McMahon was now known to the world, all the wrestling fans, the world of KFAB, they call it, as the owner of the WWE. And he became like the bad guy in wrestling. He was the bad guy in wrestling. And it was so brilliant. It was such a brilliant stroke on his part because he, this was his theme music. It was so brilliant because when he would get beat up by the wrestlers or when they would curse at him or give him the middle finger, um, people were rebelling. That was their way of rebelling against their own bosses that they hated at work. And he had no better foil on screen. And he himself was a great foil for one of the best professional wrestling personalities of all time, Stone Cold Steve Austin. And he really got into this role, which apparently the fictional world that they created in the world of wrestling looked a lot like what was going on behind the scenes at times in this battle with Stone Cold Steve Austin. In my rectal area. What? Oh, no. When you stuck... You violated me, Austin! You violated me! And uh, that character of Mr. McMahon never disappointed. It never failed to get a resounding chorus of boos from the fans. And you know, you have to face the facts. The vast majority of you are just born with inferior DNA. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, boy. You say, it's not fair I'm born with inferior DNA. But you feel sorry for yourselves, you wallow in your self-pity, and then you have to face the facts that life is not fair. I like Stephanie's DNA. And some of you, a select few, you might as well go ahead and admit it. You might as well own up to the philosophy for some of you, and that is that life sucks. And then you die. He really got into this role, as you could hear there. Of course, his wife uh, not only ran for U.S. Senate twice in Connecticut, but then went on to become the small business administrator in the Trump administration, a role that uh, she got pretty good, pretty good reviews for. And uh, I think that's part of why they went from being a more adult-oriented product to being more family-oriented again. Because, um, you know, they didn't want it to hurt Linda McMahon's political career more than it already had. So about 21 years ago, Vince McMahon was on the Howard Stern show uh, talking not as the character of Mr. McMahon, but as himself. What What is it you do with this money? I mean, do you, do you buy homes? Are you a charitable guy? I mean, what do you do? 
I, really, I, I think you do, you know, I mean, I can't speak for anyone else. He goes out and starts me. the XFL. All right, all right, there you go. That's one thing you do with it. Right. You know, but other than that, I mean, you get up like everybody else and, you know, and you go to work. I mean, I love what I do. I, you know, so I never really but work. But do you have it's a like big you, man? Probably. Now, um, in that interview with Howard Stern, he talked about his interactions with wrestlers. If I work for you and I'm a wrestler, am I allowed to come to you and say, hey, uh, Vince, I want to raise? Absolutely. I am. Yeah. Actually, to you, he doesn't go through somebody else? Uh, actually, uh, the younger guys would go through somebody else, you know, but the guys that have been around for a while, you know, I mean, you it's still like, talk to oh, you have because to. You, because you, dealt, you, with them, to. you sure. dealt with them in the beginning. Absolutely. Now, a lot of the, a lot of the um, scandals that surround Vince McMahon had to do with steroids, uh, that he would either encourage steroid use. In fact, there was a federal trial. He was acquitted, but there was a federal trial uh, regarding his role in steroid distribution over the years. And um, a lot of it had to do with sexual harassment, even before this. Now, again, I'm not excusing anything Vince McMahon or anybody that worked for him did, but um, this is an environment that is very much like a a $2 billion locker room, okay? And I'm not excusing what any what anything that goes on in a locker room. But um, there was a lot of discussion of sexual harassment. And back in 1992, he was on the Larry King Show with Bruno Sammartino, who at this point had become a very big critic of Vince McMahon and the product that he was putting out. And there was also a sexual harassment suit at the time in which it was alleged that some executives that were very close to McMahon had been sexually harassing, I believe it was young men. So um, this was a little bit of Vince McMahon in that Larry King interview dealing with that. Shortly we'll be joined on the phone by a former wrestler who says that he was sexually molested by wrestling executives. We'll start with Vince McMahon. What do you make of all this? I really don't know what to make of it. You have no concept that any of this was going on? No idea? No idea whatsoever. And, and let me say this, Larry, that it's very, very peculiar that all of these unsubstantiated charges have not gone to the appropriate authorities, firstly. For instance, there are laws, federal laws, as well as state laws, that prohibit this kind of activity. Where did this break? I mean, where did you hear about it? Who broke this story? How are the charges? Why do we know this? Well, all I know is what I read in the newspaper and haven't been able to respond to. We've uh, uh, started our own investigation, our own internal investigation, to try and get to the bottom of this. We want to get to the bottom of all of this. No one has gone to a police agency and said, I was forced to have sex. No one has filed one single charge, not one single charge, with the police, uh, with anyone. Concerning sexual harassment? Concerning sexual harassment. Have you ever heard rumors of it? No, I mean, these are things that uh, you don't hear rumors of sexual harassment. Uh, you wouldn't hear that? Oh, wait, if in fact you have someone who may be uh, gay, then sure, you're going to hear a locker room horseplay. That's going to happen. But just that. Anyone can always come to me. They've always been able to come to me and tell me if anything is out of line. So if any, of, any line. of your wrestlers could have come to you and said, there's a guy in the office coming on with me. Absolutely. Notwithstanding the fact that I would not have wanted to have been that guy because any of my wrestlers would have broken his neck. Now, um, so it was the federal... St- uh, to this day, Vince McMahon remains unconvicted of any crime, state or federal. There was that federal steroid case against him. And, you know, McMahon's relationship with wrestlers was very interesting. It was sort of a love-hate relationship, as I understand it, with almost everybody. Not one or two people. 
but everybody. Jesse Ventura, Hulk Hogan, uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Ultimate Warrior. And um, there were times, I'm very good friend. I'm, I'm friendly with an, an attorney that used to represent The Ultimate Warrior. And he said that The Ultimate Warrior just hated Vince McMahon, hated him. He said that uh, the warrior saved McMahon in that trial, even though he hated him. He said they called the warrior as a government witness and he helped Vince. And he said the lawyer told me Vince really exploited him. And uh, he said that they did a DVD bashing the warrior, even though the warrior had made all this money for McMahon and the company. And yet Vince and, and according to his lawyer, Vince destroyed him. Because he knew that the warrior needed him. And uh, so it, he is a complicated guy, probably more as a person and as a person's character, probably more bad than good. But I don't think you can overstate his incredible role in the world of pro wrestling. Now, before we go on to the $1,000 Minute, um, you can um, hear... A guy that really knows the wrestling business, I think, as well as anybody, and that's Jim Cornette, who's been a promoter, a manager, at times has worked for Vince McMahon, and he did a podcast recently where he talked a bit about Vince McMahon. What is the single worst thing that's been a detriment to the entire wrestling business? Humoring stain, uh, going toward garbage wrestling in the 90s instead of focusing on the stars they had that was the real backbone of the Attitude Era. Uh, that wasn't just one stupid gimmick or one stupid finish, but stuff that had long-lasting effects. Uh, allowing the proliferation of all the tables and ladders and chairs and thumbtacks and stupid furniture matches until that you used to have to sell him on breaking a table, and it was only to be done on a big angle or on a pay-per-view, and now they've got them stacked up under the ring like playing cards. So, I mean, you know, I don't know how to answer something like that. And uh, if you want, those of you that are holding, we'll get to you. If you want to play the $1,000 Minute, you can be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. But I talked about the love-hate relationship that Jesse Ventura had with Vince McMahon. As we go to break, I'll leave you with this final word from Governor Ventura in which he talked about why he ended up suing Vince McMahon. Now, keep in mind, as bitter as their rivalry was and as bitter as this lawsuit was, which Jesse ended up winning, as bitter as this was, Jesse still came back to work for Vince as a special guest referee while he was governor, and he said that was the most money he's ever made in the wrestling business, was the deal that he made to come back and be a referee, and he says that's kind of embarrassing as a wrestler, because the referees are the guys that can't make it in wrestling, and that's the most money that he ever made in pro wrestling, but this, listen to him talk with Vince McMahon about this, uh, talk about Vince McMahon in this lawsuit. After I started in Hollywood, I got royalties on Predator. I got royalties for everything I did in Hollywood. And every time we'd come to negotiations yearly, I'd say, Vince, how come I get royalties in Hollywood and I don't get them from you? Right. I said, I get royalties for everything I do out there, and I don't get nothing from you. Well, Vince said, I don't pay royalties. He'd have won the case. Nobody requires him to pay royalties. There's no law. But during discovery... We found out certain people were getting royalties. Hogan, Cindy Lauper, Mr. T, all the people that came from the real 
outside world, when they negotiated with Vince, they got royalties from Vince. And of course, our number one boy, Hogan, was getting them. Nobody else, though. That's how I won the case. It's called quantum merit. When you sit down and negotiate, there's a belief that the other side is telling you the truth about everything. Well, it, we proved in court Vince was not honest during the negotiations. Uh, the jury found for me completely, and when I went to work for WCW, I negotiated a royalty there, and all the jury did was take my negotiated royalty and apply it to Vince. Huh. And then I sued him quickly the second time. He took that to the Supreme Court and lost all the way. When I, then I immediately sued him again for future royalties. That he settled right away. So I get that rate, and now I'm in his computer. So every four months or whatever it is, he kicks a check out to me. Wow. And I call it my wrestling retirement. Awesome. I'm the only wrestler that gets retirement. Uh, and it's because I took him to court in federal court. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Can one guy be? I kissed her and she kissed me. Like the fella once said, Ain't that a kick in the head? The room was completely black. I hugged her and she hugged back. Like the sailor said, Quote, Ain't that a hole in the boat? My the great Dean Martin. Spinning. An incredible, incredible talent. Uh, you can hear his daughter, Dina Martin, with her show every uh, every Sunday. And uh, it's great that she's keeping her father's music alive. Uh, he uh, passed away, it's hard to believe, back in 1995, almost, almost 30 years ago, on uh, Christmas Day, no less. Christmas Day, 1995. All right, it is uh, time for us to try to give away some money to somebody with some quick wits. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Thank you very much, Chris Libertini. Doing a great job with those documentaries on the weekend. Let us say hello to Noreen in Bayonne. Hello, Noreen. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing great, Noreen. Are you familiar with this game? Have you listened before? I, I have in the past. Yes, okay, I great. Have. So uh, the timer is going to begin after I ask the first question. You're going to have 60 seconds, and we'll run through these quickly. They're pretty easy, so uh, just don't get flustered. You'll be okay. You got it. Okay. Name a type of soda. Pepsi. What holy phrase appears on all U.S. money? In God we trust. What name is traditionally given to the party held for a woman who's expecting a baby? A shower? A baby shower? What Goodfellas actor passed away this week? Paul Savino. Who is the mascot for Kellogg's Frosted Flakes? Tony the Tiger. Who was the president of the Confederate States of America? I'm sorry, the president of the Confederate State of America? Yeah, the president of the Confederacy. Robert Lee? 
No, unfortunately, he was only a general. It was Jefferson Davis. Jefferson um, Davis. Which, uh, unfortunately, yeah, I'm sorry you didn't win. You did do well, though. You were doing great timing-wise. You got up to question number six. It was Jefferson Davis. Hang on, uh, Noreen, and we're going to give... We're going to give um, you a consolation prize, so give your information to Kenneth if you would. So it is interesting that Saturday was the first Saturday that I did a digital detox and abstained from any television after 10 a.m. or any radio after 10 a.m. or my phone or a computer or Internet after 10 a.m. because I, I did get up early on Saturday or, or so Friday night, Saturday morning, I did have occasion to I watched actually two films over the weekend, which is very rare. I can't remember the last time I saw when one motion picture, let alone two. So I had this film that I've been wanting to see for about two years now. Do you remember when I interviewed the film critic Armand White? Armand White is uh, the film critic for the National Review. It's a conservative publication, but he's an interesting guy, whether you're conservative or liberal. And he recommended a film. Well, this is what he said. Two films are outstanding to me in, in 2020. Uh, the film called Straight Up, which is an independent film uh, from Strand releasing. Uh, it's, about a, it's, about a, it's about a gay kid who can't figure out how to fall in love. So he tries to have a a uh, platonic relationship with a woman, and it doesn't work out. But it's a comedy, mm-hmm. and the comedy is about their mismatch. But what makes it what makes it entertaining, what makes it pleasing, is that they both yearn to love somebody. And in the current political climate, social climate, they can't find anyone to fall in love with. But they are friends. They are they are sympathetic friends so this is how long it takes me to see a motion picture that was two years ago that conversation so saturday i finally got around to seeing this picture it's called straight up and as uh, as armand white said there it, yeah it's about a uh, a gay young man and his relationship with with a woman and it sounds like a simplistic plot and it is but I have to tell you, it is so incredibly well done. The st- stars of this film, Katie Findlay, and uh, and um, the act, the lead actors James Sweeney, they're terrific. They're absolutely terrific, and I really enjoyed this film. It is very funny. And very well done, sharply written, well acted. And you know what I liked about it? It was, you know, it's kind of like the compliment that the caller gave me before about this show. It was not the same as every other film that comes out. It is, um, uh, in, in some respects, a very basic movie, a sweet picture about the complexities of finding a, a soulmate. But it's also a nice example of being an original take on a familiar concept. And I love that it's an independent film and it's a little bit different than a lot of the the studio dreck. I don't want to call it dreck, but a lot of the studio cookie-cutter approach to romantic comedies that we, that we generally see. I thought it was really well done. I, it's on Netflix. 
So if you haven't seen it yet and you are interested in seeing it, you could check it out on Netflix. It's streaming on Netflix called Straight Up. I enjoyed it very much. Um, The tagline of the film, if you look at the movie poster, it says, all talk, no sex. And uh, I think there's uh, I think there's something to that. All right. 800-848-9222. couple of folks been very patiently holding. Let me say hello to Dave in Dumont. Hello, Dave. Hey, Frank. How you doing? Long time. It's been a while. How you been? Great. Good. Uh, About the wrestling uh, organization, WWE in particular, uh, I pitched a wrestling idea, or I had an idea for Hulk Hogan back in 1996. I met him down in Florida. I gave him a confidential disclosure agreement. Uh, Never heard from him. Spoke to his agent. And my friend who's in the entertainment industry said, Dave, they're unrelenting out there in, in Cal- here in California. And so then in 1997, I started getting calls because I called the WCW when I spoke to J.J. Dillon numerous times. And I told him about who my brother-in-law knew in Florida Championship Wrestling. And he says, oh, okay, I'll tell Mr. Hogan. And what they kept doing was they kept calling me and, and when I was in California in 1997 about the idea. When I got back to New Jersey, this guy who was in an independent wrestling organization was the owner of the organization. He said to me, uh, well, why don't you let us use your idea? I says, no, I want to go big time. I think this is going to generate hundreds of millions of dollars. And he said to me, he said, Dave, I don't know what your sexual preferences are. Uh, but if I was you, I would go with the WCW and not the WWE. Okay, so so I, I guess I'm not clear on what that has to do with the charges against McMahon or, or his departure. Because the WWE harasses uh, men. Ah, I see. Okay. All right. Okay. So Sexually harasses men. And that's what you ended up doing. You ended up going with WCW. Uh, no, the idea never got used. Ah. Well, at least you remain un- remained unharassed. So, Mike is in Pennsylvania. Hello, Mike. How you doing, Frank? I like that last part you said to the guy. What you call it? Um, big big man. I mean, when I was a kid, in order to go see wrestling or boxing, it was on the ticket. You had to be 14 years or older. Now they let all these little kids in there. Their show is is so raunchy and 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 stupid that uh, you, you wonder why the kids are so violent today, you know. And, you know, I don't want to hear that, oh, it's, it's on, that the fathers are taking their kids to go see this. And they're acting like them jerks, too. Big Smith, man, thank God he's gone. Oh, uh, well, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't agree with that, Mike. And I don't know the last time you watched the WWE programming, but um, the it's not that raunchy anymore, actually. And that was one of the reasons, uh, that was one of the the... Reasons that Bruno Sammartino chose to come back and be honored because uh, Vince McMahon's son-in-law, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, who kind of runs a key division of the wrestling company now, he told Sammartino, take a look at our product. And Sammartino saw that it wasn't really a vulgar presentation anymore. So I think what you're saying would have been true 15 or 20 years ago. It's not true anymore. Not in the WWE. There are other wrestling federations that are a little bit more adult-themed, but not the WWE. I think they've sort of ceded the edgy aspect of things to others, including MMA, uh, which is doing some WWE-style things. But if you watch it with an open mind this week, for instance, I think you'll find that that's not the case. 
So, um, but look, different strokes for different folks. 800-848-9222. We'll do 15 seconds of fame in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, This is one of our two theme songs from Stevie G and the Stonettes. Uh, They do a great job. You can check out this song on uh, iTunes called The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, We will end this show as we end each and every program. By the way, you know who's going to be here tomorrow? Dr. Sky. Quite a bit to ask him about in terms of what's happening in space. You're not going to want to miss that discussion. So if you can think of anything exciting from a space front, be armed with a good question tomorrow. But we will end the show as we end each show with an opportunity to give you an opportunity to speak for 15 seconds. All you have to do is dial 800-848-9222. The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Russ in Queens. Dave in the Bronx. The person that ruined wrestling wasn't Vince McMahon. It was Vince Russo. Thank you. Fred in Yonkers. Hey, Frank, the other day I went fishing on a boat called the Sea Tiger. I caught a flat fish. They said it was a fluke. Should I be insulted? <laughs> Mike in the Poconos. Morning again, Frank. Longtime Mets fan. Uh, played some college baseball way back in the day. When I was 15, I was at the last game of the 69 World Series when Cleon made that catch. Pete Rose, Bud Harrison, dust up. And you know what? Bring on Steinbrenner's Yankees. To, to I still call it Shay. Carol in New Jersey. Hey, Frank. I used to put my initials on my food at work when I put it in the refrigerator, and no one ever touched it. E. Frank in Astoria. Yes, uh, Frank. I think that racism is a myth in the United States. Why don't they get the neo-Nazi skinheads, the Ku Klux Klan, Antifa, and get them to have a summit in Washington, D.C. to discuss this? Jay in Brooklyn. All the would-be shooters out there and massacres, why don't you go after Pelosi, Schiff, and Schumer? Ah, well, that's not, uh, we don't want to encourage that, not even jokingly. Cheech and Howard Beach. I'd like to thank our beloved mayor for welcoming the newcomers to our sanctuary city. Since he doesn't have that not-in-my-backyard attitude, in the interim, I hope he considers setting up tents in Carl Schertz Park, Central Park. And they could use the bathroom. George in Westchester. Hey, Frank, how are you? Just curious. How can we trade a billion stocks a day and have an answer at uh, 401 and we can't do an election, have an election uh, result 
before uh, three weeks. Billy in the Bronx. Sizzle moron, sizzle moron, sizzle moron. John in Staten Island. Rest in peace, Jerry Lee, former editor, sports editor and writer for the Advance. Thank you, John. Hey, I am looking forward to that Met-Yankee game tonight at 7. That'll be fun. Frank Morano, good day.